Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Greetings and salutations, everybody. This is CJ, and welcome to, if I'm not mistaken, episode 252 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I am very happy to once again be speaking with Alex von Sternberg of the podcast History Impossible. And we are going to be having a very wide-ranging freewheeling conversation, as the two of us often do when we chat, about an episode of History Impossible that Alex put out, I think a couple of weeks ago, with the provocative title of Stakeholder Nazism. And this was actually the audio version of what was initially an essay that Alex published, I believe on his Substack, if I remember right. And I found it to be a very, very thought-provoking podcast episode when I listened to it. And it really offered a very independent, unique, and kind of different. I mean, he does draw on some other people's work, but nonetheless, I found it to be a very compelling analysis of things like so-called stakeholder capitalism and wokeness in corporations and government institutions and the so-called professional managerial class, as James Burnham first described it over half a century ago. And I will definitely put a link in the show notes to Alex's episode that we're talking about here. And I very much urge you to listen to it. You know, your call, whether you want to listen to our conversation first and then go listen to his uh, solo episode sharing this take that we're talking about or vice versa. But either way, regardless of which order you listen to them in, I would highly recommend that you listen to both our conversation and his original episode about which we are talking. But before I flip it over to our conversation, I do have a couple of very important announcements that I want to make. And the first one is that I finally set up a proper email list with a landing page and the whole nine yards. And what I'm offering you as your free thank you gift for just signing up with your email, don't need any other information, not even your name, let alone anything else. But what you get if you are kind enough to sign up for my email newsletter mailing list is going to be my dangerous American history bibliography. And this is a list of over 150 books on various aspects of American history compiled and recommended by me and sorted into categories. Like I've got, you know, books on World War II. I've got books on the CIA. I've got books on the Civil War. I've got books on the American Revolution, etc. So it's organized into, you know, kind of subcategories. And for most of the books, I also have some comments and annotations, you know, a sentence or two of me commenting on maybe what the book is about or why I think it's particularly interesting or important. So if you want to sign up for my email newsletter list and get your free Dangerous American History bibliography compiled and created by yours truly, go to DangerousBib.com. Dot com. That's the word dangerous and then B-I-B dot com to sign up. And of course, I also will put a link to it in the show notes. Next very important announcement 
that I want to make you aware of is my next public speaking gig, which is going to be at the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, on the weekend of March 25th and 26th. Now, Camden, uh, as far as I know, is maybe like an hour outside of Nashville, so kind of central Tennessee region. And the event is being put on by good friend of me and the show, Nicole Sauce, my former collaborator on the old Unloose the Goose podcast back when that was still a going concern. I am going to be one of the speakers at this event, and it looks like a really cool event. Most of the speakers are talking about very practical nuts and bolts type things related to prepping, survivalism, all that kind of stuff. And then there's me, the history guy, to kind of give the egghead perspective. And what I'm going to be talking about at the Self-Reliance Festival is going to be the decline and fall of empires, because I got news for you. I think, at least if you're American, you're in one. And I'm not sure as of this recording if I'll be speaking on Saturday or Sunday. I don't know the exact schedule yet, but either way, I will be hanging around both days. And if you're a listener to this show and can make it, I would love to shake your hand, say hi in person, whatever and have you listen to what I have to say. And I'm sure the other speakers at the event are going to be very interesting and informative and cool as well. So if you can make it out to Camden, Tennessee, March 25th and 26th, please get your tickets as soon as possible, because my understanding is that the price is going to increase on February 22nd. So if you think you might be going to the Self-Reliance Festival to hear me and a bunch of other awesome people give presentations and all kinds of other cool stuff going on, Grab those tickets ASAP before the price goes up, and if you use the link that I'm going to put to the event in the show notes of this episode to get tickets, I will get an affiliate commission at no additional charge to you for referring you. So it's another way you can, you know, kick a few shekels into my pocket and help me out that doesn't cost you anything if you're already intending on going to the event. All right, now I'm going to flip it over to my conversation with Alexander Rader von Sternberg of History Impossible. Okay, so Alex, I wanted to talk to you about, I guess it's your now your second most recent episode yeah. um, that came out a little over a month ago, right around the end of last year. And uh, the title, if I'm not mistaken, was Stakeholder Nazism, <laughs> which is quite a provocative title. You're not exactly um, subtle. I'm not breaking, known for that. Breaking Godwin's Law right out of the gate, I guess. That was my original subtitle, actually, is like, I, I think if I remember right, it was in which I break Godwin's law right out of the gate, actually. That oh, was how okay. I phrased it. Yeah. But then I was like, you know what? I let's 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 stay more focused on this and not be so cheeky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I guess it was, it was a little bit of a departure for you because um, it was a, a fairly long solo episode, but it was more of kind of like a current events mm-hmm. than, you know, your, your other longer solo episodes where, you know, you're talking about something from history from 80 years ago or something. Yeah. Um, so um, I listened to it and I, I really enjoyed it because I felt like it was, I, I know you were, you were influenced by like several different books and things like that, but I still felt like it was a um, somewhat original take 
on the whole woke phenomena and, and particularly in like the corporate world and the institutional world, you know, tying together uh, some of the ideas of James Burnham, uh, some of the critiques of Burnham by people like Orwell. Um, but anyway, I, I thought it was a really interesting episode. And so right away, I was like, oh, I want to talk to him about this one because this, this nice. is, you know, it's it uh, as often happens, um, you know, when I'm listening to you or reading you. Um, it, it like it's like a Venn diagram where some of what you're saying is like stuff I was thinking, and then enough of it is different stuff that you know, or at least thought of in a different way. That it's a kind of an interesting overlap, but not a hundred percent. So anyway, um, yeah. How, how would you summarize your like your main argument as to I don't know the the, the main the like, thesis, central thesis of the yeah, episode? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I wanted to mention. Um, to be honest, the reason why I did this sort of departure, the polemic, as I called it, um, I was largely influenced by you in a lot of ways because you were willing to put yourself out there about maybe not current events specifically, but like you, you talk about current events a lot. And then you, and you're, cause you want to let your audience know this is where I'm coming from. This is my honest history that I'm giving you. This is why I'm saying what I'm saying about Woodrow Wilson, for example. And I was just thinking, like, you know what? I mean, people like punditry. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a pundit. I don't want to be a pundit, but I do have, you know, thoughts on things currently. And I'd rather not some people like a lot of history podcast fans would say they don't want their podcasts or history infected with current events. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll put out stuff for the people who do like that stuff. And, you know, it's not to say that I'll leave current references out of historical stuff, but, you know, some, we need a sort of, you know, a release valve on some of these things. A lot of us do, I think. And I think you influenced me on that. So I want to thank you first of all. Oh, cool. Um, but the yeah no problem man uh but the uh the central thesis of this though was uh sort of said in the subtitle that i ended up choosing which is that we're getting distracted i think by the superficial similarities to hardcore progressive politics and that's why you see people like i forgot who it was but whoever wrote in the washington examiner that stakeholder capitalism which we'll get to is a trojan horse for communism to which i after reading Vivek Ramaswamy's book, Woke Inc., as he said, uh, Marx is a threat to the bottom line. DEI training, for example, is not. And that was really striking to me because I was like thinking, okay, we're looking at this wrong. And to be honest, I there is at least one source that I have found. I think I linked to it in the original written essay. Uh, the FEE, I think it's a Foundation for Economic uh, no, that's not what it is. What does FEE stand for? Do you know? Uh, Foundation for Economic Education, I think. Are you talking about the sort of like libertarian? Yeah. Think tank? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think it's Foundation yeah, yeah. for Economic Education. Right. Yeah. And and uh, that uh, they they have made the comparison to fascism specifically, but more broadly. But I was thinking about it in terms of Nazism because <laughs> this is something to take out of context. I think about Nazism a lot. Uh, because I write about it a lot. I do a lot of history about it, and I've been looking at the underlying ideology of it, such as it is, because believe it or not, there was not consistency among the Third Reich or in its intelligentsia. And if you, I actually had a really nice German listener email me to talk about that this episode, and we've corresponded a bit. And he, first of all, gave me some insight into what the German education system is like regarding Third Reich history. And that's just interesting enough on its own. Uh, but it, it it's also really interesting because like there isn't really a consensus on like what the core ideology is except what we can agree upon like was the common thread and that's hatred of Jews that's a big one um but like in terms of uh the the reason i'm i'm 
digressing on that is because there there was a sort of uh, ideological program at the core of national socialism, and that motivated them in terms of how they did business, essentially. They were not – it was interesting. Hitler hated capitalism, but he was very willing to be a corporatist. He just was it, – it, it's – I made the comparison, and this is another thing that my German listener disagreed with me on, but I, I do think it d- applies, is that the closest analog to Nazi economics is modern Chinese economics, where on the ground, the market is essentially free. Like people can do basically whatever they want. They can engage in commerce however they want. It's not like communism at all. But as soon as the Fuhrer, in the case of you know Nazism, says, oh, I want Krupp to start making a crap load of machine guns, they're going to make a crap load of machine guns. And if they don't, he'll take them over. Like he'll send in the troops and they'll, and they'll do it or they'll they'll force the people to do it. So it's and it's very similar to what China was doing very quietly last uh, or was it 2021? I think it was 2021 and into last year, they were engaging in a very quiet second cultural revolution where they were nationalizing a lot of uh, businesses, basically taking them over and shutting down a lot of smaller businesses because, well, who knows? We don't really know why. At least I don't really know why because they're they're kind of an opaque structure over there. <laughs> but basically, that's sort of the comparison I saw there. And Anyway, to loop it back to what what we call stakeholder capitalism, uh, which we can jump back to to define for people if we want, it, uh, it it struck me as something that because it's ideologically motivated, as in an effort to be responsible, quote unquote, whether you're talking about the environment, diversity, equity, and inclusion, just fill in the blank with any of the social political causes that corporations get behind while still being profit-seeking ventures – it struck me as like very similar to how the Nazis let things be the way that like, you know, it's like, yes, make your money, make your money, make your money, do whatever you want. But you have to adhere to our principles that we're establishing for you. And while the difference with stakeholder capitalism in the West is that we don't have the state mandating these things to be done. There is a lot of internal and external pressure, social pressures, namely, to get these corporations to adhere to these pretty uniform principles. And it, obviously, there's a big difference between Nazism and modern progressivism, like objectively, but the motivation is the same. It's ideological. I think that summarized it. Yeah. And the way I would think about it is that the content of like woke progressivism is obviously very different from the content of Nazism as as an ideology. And, you know, you've made it pretty clear in the episode, like you're not at all saying that, you know, the, the W E F crowd or their kind of minions and foot soldiers um, in the managerial class, which we can get into uh, Mm -hmm. uh, shortly that, it's not like they're a bunch of closet Nazis, literally, who are no. like, pretending to be woke so that they could then take over and then be like, oh, surprise, you know, like yeah. reveal like we're actually Nazis. Like, no, um, yeah. but but that in terms of its methodology, when it comes to corporatism mm-hmm. and this, you know, these public private partnerships and, you know, allowing profits and private enterprise but under certain conditions and right certain limits and whatever um yeah that it's more similar to like fascistic 
mm-hmm. economics of well, what's corporatism. That, what, what's, that to, de- um, what's that definition of fascism? It's a corporate power plus state power. You can fill this in for me, right? I, I'm trying to. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually, it. um, if you're thinking of what I'm thinking of, it's a Mussolini quote from right. pretty early on uh, in his, you know, running of Italy. It's something very straightforward, like fascism is nothing less than the merger of state and corporate power. Right. Like right. Yeah. Well, this is where we can turn to, you know, uh, what I, I love how you call them uh, your favorite lefties or the good lefties or whatever, who understand that. Jimmy Dore seems to understand that quite well. He he cites that quote a lot, I've noticed. Um, and I and I, you know, I'm not saying that we are in a fascist state. I'm just saying, again, you know, making fascism, Nazism, or even communism comparisons in the modern era is always going to be fraught because it's never going to be one-to-one. But because there's the only people who seem to have their eye on the ball when it comes to what stakeholder capitalism is seem to be on the right. And a lot of them are falling prey to the superficial elements where they're thinking, oh, because it's left wing, it's going to be communism. Again, it can't be because if it was communist, then the company would be signing its own death warrant. They would never make money again if they were able to get to the logical endpoint. This is elitism. You could maybe call it if you wanted, but it's not something that's going to result in the dictatorship of the proletariat, nothing like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely agree with the point you made in in that episode that it's it's kind of like the intele- intellectually lazy yeah. right wingers who are just like, oh, it's just all communism, you know, mm-hmm. and it's sort of this this whole idea that there's just like this eternal monolithic, you know, communist threat, and it's still 1952 or something, right? Yeah. Um. And yeah, I mean, they're not generally these sorts of people are not advocating for the nationalization of the means of production. And no, as far as no. I can tell. And I mean, there definitely are some parallels and overlaps with some of their ideology, with sure, communism, absolutely. but there are also these important differences. Um, one of the things where I can see a parallel is, and, and I have said before, and I'm not the only person or the first person to say this, but that a lot of wokeism in terms of how it operates, particularly on what you might call like the front lines, is very Maoist in method. Mm, now, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not Maoist in content. It's not, you know, advocating for the same goals and things as Maoism. But in particular, if you look at Maoism uh, during the Cultural Revolution, mm-hmm. like to me, in terms of methodology, it's very similar. Absolutely. Um, to, Absolutely. To the way wokeism, you know, where it's like you have to confess your privilege, mm-hmm. there's struggle sessions, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole nine yards. It's like a slightly softened version of, of the thought reform of Maoism. Uh, now, the content is, is not the same, but just in terms of the techniques. Um, I, I was reading a lot recently. Um, I, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be putting out soon as an episode. It's just some some of my thoughts on how to try to uh, as as much as as possible depropagandize people who are just highly blue pilled, and um, a lot of the stuff that I read in putting that together were uh, books about cults and mm, you know mm. cult exit counselor type people's books, you know, many of whom are former cult members themselves very often. And um, in doing that, I also read some of the classics in the genre, like like Robert J. Lifton's book on Chinese thought reform. Wait, uh, that's like that. not the psychology of totalitarianism, is it? Um, that's the one book of his that I've been meaning to read for a while. Um, yeah. Or, I've, wait, I've no, actually, that's not him. I'm, I'm getting it mixed up, I think. But anyway, yeah. Well, uh, um, I've got it right over here. 
um, off to the side of my desk, actually. Okay. It is um, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a study of brainwashing in China. Okay. Well, that, that's much more specific. I'm, I'm going to have to hit that up. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, it was written in, I believe in the 1950s. So even before the okay. Cultural Revolution. And I think it was uh, largely inspired by, he did some work uh, as a psychologist counseling uh, Westerners who had been through the Chinese thought reform prison system. Um, mm. And, you know, I, I think some of them were the, the infamous, you know, Korean war POWs, but also right, right. he, he um, like one of the first anecdotes he tells in the book is about a French doctor who had just been, you know, living in China mm-hmm. um, for however many years. And I guess the, you know, the communists took over and he thought, well, you know, I can still just keep doing my thing here. And um Eventually, he gets busted, you know, presumably just because he's a Westerner. Sure, yeah. Um, and gets accused China, of all China has sorts a history of, of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially under Mao. And, um, you know, they they accuse him of all these uh, crazy espionage crimes and things mm-hmm. that he didn't actually do. He was just, you know, a guy who was working there as a doctor or whatever. Um, and, you know, he goes through in detail the, the process, the, the methodology mm. that they use to break him down. And, you know, when you look at that and you look at a lot of the stuff that happened during the Cultural Revolution, it's like, yeah, this is this is just a more, um, you know, aggressive gloves off version mm-hmm. of the way wokeism operates. Like if you're, you know, brought into racial sensitivity training or whatever mm-hmm. like that, it's <laughs> it's basically slightly softened Maoist technique. But anyway. Yeah. No, no. Well, I wanted to point out that, like, that is also a good point. And I mean, we can only speculate on the. I, I, it's more like about why this is. And it's more like to me that I, I, I think it just sort of speaks to how, well, if you'll pardon the term, how postmodern our current, uh, you know, social movements are, where they're taking little bits and pieces of different ideologies from the 20th century and then applying them. I think at the end of the day, they wouldn't want to apply. Well, maybe some of them would, but they wouldn't want to apply the Nazi or fascist version of the struggle session because that's how you get the night of long knives. It's, it's not the, the, the one thing about the Nazis, I'll speak to the Nazis specifically because I don't actually know that much about Italian fascism, funny enough, but the way the Nazis handled internal dissent was a bullet to the back of the head. They just, there was no struggle session. I mean, that's sort of like the Soviet system too, I would think, at least under Stalin. Like there wasn't much in the way of struggle sessions as far as I'm aware. That is a very Maoist kind of uh, methodology that was actually, interestingly enough, a carryover from the years of the Great Leap Forward, probably from even before that. But I've been listening to Yang Jisheng's uh, book, Tombstone, which is all about the Great Leap Forward. He has another book called The World Turned Upside Down um, about the Cultural Revolution. And funny enough, he didn't get in trouble for the former because he still lives in China. He didn't get in trouble for the one about the Great Leap Forward because that is seen largely as a failure in Chinese history, even by the the party. But his book about the Cultural Revolution, he did get in trouble for that. Hmm. And uh, neither of the books, I believe, are available in China, but he did get some sort of punitive treatment after the second one came out. But he lived through both. He was uh, His father died in the Great Leap Forward and – uh, just from, you know, starvation as millions of others did. And, uh, the, the way he talks about, cause he chronicled all of the things that happened during that period. And the one thing that he talked about that was very striking to me was there were struggle sessions during the great leap forward too. Mao was, you know, not even there, there wasn't even the cult of personality, uh, uh, uh um, around Mao the way there was 10 years later during the cultural revolution, but the same methods of like, 
beating dissenters and getting them to admit their crimes and then sometimes beating them afterward and then beating them to death was very common during uh, the Great Leap Forward. That was how a lot of the direct death was caused in there, which is, you know, this separate conversation, but it's sort of why I like to qualify the Great Leap Forward as like being not a genocide in the same sense as the Holocaust or the Holodomor or anything like that. It was a much more indirect kind of uh, mass culling that might not even have been deliberate. And there's a whole other set of reasons for that, but it doesn't dif- diffuse the responsibility whatsoever from Mao and the inner party. Yeah. Well, when, when looking at the, again, for lack of a better term, the whole wokest f- phenomenon, uh, it, it, it seems like, to me at least when you're looking at the kind of middle to upper levels of the whole phenomenon, when you're looking actually at like big corporations and, you know, big institutions like universities and uh, even government agencies and things that when you're at the middle to upper levels of it, it, it's very uh, corporatist Mm -hmm. in its methodology. It does have a lot of similarities to kind of the fascist way Mm -hmm. of, of um, running things, you know, often indirectly, but, but then when you kind of go down mm-hmm. to the lower levels of the whole movement or phenomenon or whatever, um, that it then is, is operating more in kind of a Maoist methodology. Right. And um, another thing I always think of uh, in terms of similarity to, to Maoism and the Cultural Revolution in particular is this whole idea of the powerful elites using uh, radicalized youth mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. their foot soldiers um and and propagandizing these youth into believing that they're being rebellious when in reality they're actually serving the interests of the people at the very top right i mean right, now right. this this old guy hanging on to to power he he weaponizes these these radicalized youth um against you know his potential rivals and threats in the middle and upper reaches of the party right right and you know, the, the, the dumb weaponized youth don't even realize that they're just being played as sock puppets by the most elite guy there is in the whole freaking country. Um, and, and it seems to me there's a lot of similarities where, you know, you look at like the, the corporate CEOs and the, you know, top politicians and the oligarchs behind them mm-hmm. that these, these woke people, uh, at the, at the lower levels of things, they think that they're the resistance. They think they're yeah. these like rebellious, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. outsiders and whatever. It's like, you dummy you don't realize you're actually you're everything you're doing is in line with what the biggest corporations and the pentagon and the Mm -hmm. cia and all these people want you to do dummy yeah well and see the the, the tragedy of uh well we can speak of the cultural revolution in specific terms and anecdotal terms because my mother-in-law was a kid she was growing up in the midst of the cultural revolution she you know The way she explained it to me is it wasn't just that they had no choice. There was no alternative. I mean, that's the big difference there too, which I'll jump back to in a second, but that it felt amazing to be part of that. Now, if you were of the parents' generation, you know, the, you know, her parents' generation, it wasn't good because you would be paraded through the streets with giant dunce caps on. People would throw things at you, call you all sorts of horrible things. Sometimes if you were less lucky, lucky, you'd be beaten by the crowd. And it was all at the behest of the younger generation. And it, it's a it's a nightmare story. There's a great book called Son of the Revolution. I forgot the author's name, but it's a really good book. I read it in college, uh, which really shows how college has changed. I can't imagine a history class would assign that book anymore because it doesn't 
it, it, it doesn't make um, anything left of center look very good, at least in the Chinese context. But uh, the, um, the, the, the thing, though, that I think is important, the tragedy of the Cultural Revolution is that there was no alternative. While here in the West, in the modern day, like as much as stakeholder capitalism, which, by the way, I should define using Vivek Ramaswamy's term so nobody can feel left hanging. He calls it the idea that companies should serve not just their shareholders, but other societal interests. That's the key right there. That's where the whole, you know, ideology aspect comes in. But which which then sorry to interrupt, but that, you know, that that definition to me always begs the question of like, OK, but who gets to decide? Right. That's his question. too. Out of, yeah, yeah. Out of the infinite other interests of, you know, right. Anyway, it, it seems yeah. to me like it's a it's a diffusion of responsibility move where it's like mm-hmm. this company is going to serve everyone mm-hmm. and everyone's mm-hmm. interests. And like in reality, according to like, maybe that's not my interest. Maybe it's not your interest. Maybe it's not. The foot soldiers interest, you know, a lot of them are like true believing, you know, anarcho-communists. A lot of those people who are down on the streets, they tend to believe that stuff. And the fact, I mean, and I don't think that uh, to be fair to a lot of them, I don't think they, I think it's sort of an interesting relationship because I think a lot of those true believers down there, those radicals, they don't care about corporate. They don't like corporations. At least they say they don't. They think and this is just me spitballing here that they're using the corporations and the corporations think they're using them. And reality, the corporations are using them because they're able to benefit from the radical energy in the air by putting in Amazon's case, for example, black lives matter banner across the top of their page and look righteous in doing so. And that benefits their bottom line. Whereas the best in a narco communist on the street can hope for is to get their head kicked in by a proud boy or a cop, you know, it's and and you know to be honest though when you're down in the street trying to burn down you know police stations I I don't know what else you're expecting to happen but that's just that's just me but yeah like I I think it's interesting though the way my mother-in-law talked about what the cultural revolution was like about how it felt good how you're all in this struggle together that is it's not really a big profound thing to say but it does connect to why anybody joins a mass movement um, Eric Hoffer's true believer that I think last time we talked, I told you I'd finally read it. And it's like one of my favorite books of all time now. Like he talked about that plenty of times. That's that sense of meaning that people get from joining mass movements is very powerful. And it inevitably, perhaps, I don't like that word. That's my big problem with it. But, uh, w- w- with, uh, with, you know, Burnham's ideas, but, uh, I, I do, think that it's it increases the likelihood of that energy that power of being exploited by people at the top and in this case in our case it's corporations in china's case in the 60s it was mao and in germany's case it was hitler and his party and i think that we can you know what here's what we can do i i was very provocative by comparing it to nazism but i was also clear it's because that's what i know about I think what we can say, though, is that stakeholder capitalism is just another form of authoritarianism, if not ultimately totalitarianism, if we want to be as broad as possible while staying specific to what we're talking about. Do you think that's a good way to describe it? Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you, so um, you early on in in this episode that we're talking about um, talked about James Burnham, who has been in recent years getting like a a second lease on life uh, mm-hmm. despite having been dead for however many years 
Um, but you know, as, as an intellectual, like he's probably been more read and more talked about in like the last five years or whatever than in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the, the whole idea of his, of the managerial revolution and mm-hmm. this professional managerial class that's so central to what you were talking about? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, he wasn't even the um, the creator of the term, uh, the managerial state or the managerial. Uh, I didn't call them the elite, uh, but I want to make sure I actually get this right. It was the modern corporation yes. and private property. I have it in in my notes that I jotted down. Well, I, I listened to the episode um, for for a second time. I listened to it when it first came out and I listened to it a second time uh, a couple days ago when I was working on some stuff in the house and I just had a little notepad. So I was just jotting down uh, <laughs> how embarrassing, you know, my episode, my own episode better than I do. Yeah. I just listened <laughs> to it like 48 for hours sure. ago. So <laughs> sure. 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 Uh, but uh, who was that by? Did you write down the authors? Um, that part I didn't jot down. Oh, that's I just okay. But, down the title. But, right. Yeah. But uh, so, so I'll just say it this way. Um, Burnham was actually part of a, a sort of, it seemed like there was a sort of strain of thinking in the air in the 1930s into the early 1940s that he just sort of like capitalized on ultimately and came to believe that as Orwell put it, the rulers of this new society will be the people who effectively control the means of production. That is business executives, technicians, bureaucrats, and soldiers lumped together by Burnham under the name of managers. So basically it's sort of like a communist revolution on paper, like how you are transferring the means of production to the proletariat in the case of communism, the working class. But in this case, it's Burnham was basically talking about transferring the means of production to what you, what we would today call middle managers. We would basically, they're the ones who manage the company. The founders have very little to do with how the company operates. In fact, you can actually see a parallel to this system uh, this is going to be fun with Twitter before Elon Musk took over, because what you had was Jack Dorsey. And as we found out from the Twitter files, the founder not being aware of policies happening within his own company being implemented by the management class within his company, people like the Trust and Safety Commission and so forth. Trust and Safety Commission and Twitter is the professional managerial class. That's the best modern example of it. And the fact that the founder has nothing to do with that or has very little to do, or at least claims to, we can take that with a grain of salt. But I'm inclined to believe Dorsey had very little awareness of how things were being managed within his own company. Like even when he said in front of Congress, we do not shadow ban, part of me is inclined to believe that he actually thought that. Hmm. That he, I mean, I don't remember whatever I I read the Twitter files. There's so much in there. I might be getting that wrong, that he might have been aware of it, but My point being is that I would not be shocked if he didn't know because that's, you know, founders don't manage their companies. They're the ones who make them. They're the creative types. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, parallel in my mind, and I've I've been increasingly uh, noticing how much big corporations and government institutions are so very similar in so many ways. And one of them is this phenomenon of like middle management really mm-hmm. has a lot more control than most people realize. I have a question. Would you characterize the alphabet agencies, we can call them, are they the middle management of the federal state, would you say? Uh, yeah. And I, or part of it maybe is a better way of putting it. Not for the sure. Management state. Yeah. 
for sure, especially in kind of the middle to upper, but not necessarily always the top people okay. in those agencies. So in other words, the, um, and I can, I, I kind of combine in, in thinking about this rightly or wrongly, I combine, you know, what I know uh, from research and things about like how the FBI or the CIA or whoever operates with my own firsthand experience inside academia, which I was going to say academia is, is part of this too. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, you Much know, I couldn't so. help but think about that, um, you know, constantly Yeah. Um, when thinking about this stuff that at least in my experience that the people who often have the most influence mm-hmm. uh, in practice, maybe, maybe not, you know, in theory based on the rules in the handbook or whatever, but sure. the people who often have the most real influence on how things run at a college day to day or, you know, your vice presidents and your mm-hmm. deans and stuff. And yeah, the president of, of the college or the university, he's nominally at the top as is the board of trustees and the board of trustees often has even more say than the president does mm-hmm. um, in a lot oh, of yeah. ways. But really in terms of, and they can make their pronouncements and, you know, control certain things, but in, in terms of day to day, the, the biggest influences, I think, on most colleges and universities, how they actually operate are going to be your kind of middle management, your, your admin. Yeah. Yeah. Your, and, yeah. And, you know, your VPs, your deans, um, and, and to a lesser extent, depending on how it's organized, maybe people like your department chairs and stuff like sure. that. Um, and the yeah. same thing in, in like a, a school, you know, mm-hmm. where, where, yeah, the superintendent, and the school board, they can they can issue pronouncements and rules about certain things, but um, you know, day to day, where the rubber meets the road is principals, vice principals, people mm-hmm. like that, deans, whatever. Um, so anyway, in, in circling back to the federal agencies, like you know, a president can replace the people at the top mm-hmm. of an agency. You know, he can nominate a new secretary of state or whatever. Um, You've talked about this with. Um... I believe it was when you were talking about Wilson's uh, uh, study of administration, I believe is when you were talking about this, where like how you were talking about how when people say the deep state, the ones who are being serious, at least, are talking about the people who are never replaced by the president because the president isn't up to that. It's the head of the agency that's up to that. And even it's probably not even up to the head of the agency necessarily. They can probably move funding around or something, but they're the the middle managers are it's like you got to emphasize it you can't emphasize this enough that the middle managers are in the middle people don't pay attention to them like they're right in the middle and they're the ones who run day-to-day operations in any organization at this point yeah yeah and i do believe that like any organization that gets beyond a certain you know whatever it might be amount of size and complexity yeah. and bureaucracy um, these sorts of things, it, whether it's nominally a state institution or a private one, that certain dynamics are going to be at play. And one of them is going to be this, you know, kind of middle management really sort of runs the show, even even though in some cases they might not even realize that's what they're doing. I think in some cases they are conscious of their their influence and power. But um, well, I, I would say that this is one thing. And just to you know, sort of head any critics off at the past saying that, like, oh, the PMC, the professional managerial class isn't real. I've heard that said plenty of times, usually from what we would call shit libs, um, because, frankly, it's usually in their interest to deny it exists because – the PMC is the enforcer of progressive ideology within the corporate world, especially, but also within academia and the state. And why, why would anyone who adheres to the same principles as those people want to do away with that now? Uh, but th- they might say that like, oh, well, 
even if it is real, it wasn't a conscious thing. Well, I would posit that that's possibly true in the state and especially in corporations. I mean, I, those are uh, corporations, especially they're they are unique things to a degree. Each one is distinct from it from the other, regardless of the shared ideology. But I can say just I mean, and I would be curious to hear your experience on this, too, because as somebody who just recently left academia, but I know for a fact, having worked in academic administration while I was a student, that uh, like not only how it works, how it's structured like a corporation. I mean, I was an outreach. I was a, I was a, I was a cold caller. I was essentially, essentially raising money for the, you know, the, the various departments of the university. But literally the year I left was the year that I would go so far as to say there was an academic coup at the University of Minnesota or an uh, administrative coup, I should say, because when I left, it was 2009. By 2012, the administration of that university had ballooned by 900%. It was like, it was a big controversy within academia, like around the country. Like, University of Minnesota was pointed to as the example of what are we doing? Why are we letting these admins bloat themselves like this while the student body is staying the same? We're not hiring more faculty. It's just the admin that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And to my mind, it's essentially a coup. At that point, they want more influence within the university system. And I'm not here to say that there shouldn't be a managerial class of some kind. I just think that we need to keep our eye on the ball at how much power they have and how much power they seek. And I think it would be naive for us to pretend that at least in academia, at the very least in academia, they're not seeking it because all the evidence points to them seeking it because they're growing themselves and not growing anything else. Yeah, well, I I don't have the specific statistics um, at my fingertips or whatever, but it's it's so interesting how there's been parallel trends throughout most big bureaucratic institutions uh, in the United States, at least, and presumably in much of the developed world uh, in in recent decades, where regardless of whether it's public or private, the kind of the administrative bloat has been mm-hmm. like a constant. And right. so there are hard numbers that you can look up where you look at like how many, what was the ratio of teachers to administrators in grade schools 60 years ago? What is it now? And you find out like, oh, there's proportionately way more administrators than there were back then. And then right. you can look at, you know, uh, large kind of bureaucratic type corporations and you find the same phenomenon where mm-hmm. there's just this, this management bloat. And then you can also look at uh, something like the military, the United States military. The ratio um, of enlisted men to officers is way low. No kidding. In in uh, in World War II, uh-huh. again, I don't remember the specific numbers, but I did look some of this stuff up one time. Sure. And um, you know, there were way more enlisted men per each officer um, of the U.S. Army in World War II than there are now by by orders of magnitude. There's way more We should look officers. at Vietnam for that, too, because I'm sure it's similar, a similar picture. Korea, Vietnam, all the wars that we've had. I mean, I have to wonder what it was like during Iraq and Afghanistan, for that matter. If, yeah, it's, a, it, if it's an effective peacetime or if it's an effective something else is what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think with the, the military, there's, you know, probably a mixture of things going on. And Part of it, though, throughout, like across the board, seems to be it's like an unconscious understanding amongst the managerial types of the institution in question that, like, we need to make work for mm-hmm. other people like us. So there's not a whole bunch of unemployed and underemployed 
uh, over credentialed oh, people who are pissed that's off. That's academia. That's academia without exactly. question. And, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think a, a very similar dynamic is probably going on in uh, in the military and other mm-hmm. government agencies and the larger corporations where they, they might not ever say it out loud or, or even think it consciously, but like they kind of know. Well, it's kind of like a form of nepotism in a way. Like it, it, that's not the right word, obviously, because that denotes something very specific. But you know what I'm saying? Where it's like they're trying to give meaning to their pals, to their comrades, which great. I mean, like from an emotional standpoint, I get it. Like, you know, of course you want to employ your friends if you can, if they're unemployed. But it's like it seems sort of like a, a mass movement to do that in a way within these organizations. Yeah. Well, in academia, especially there's what I would call like a Ponzi scheme element to it. Oh, absolutely. Where, you know, how do you keep growing your number of students? And well, you have to offer them the possibility of jobs mm-hmm. and let's mm-hmm. face it. A lot of the things people get degrees in from college are things where most of the jobs that directly tie into that degree are just teaching that subject at university, you know, and there's always going to be a, a, a shortage, not shortage, but um, uh, a deficit. There has to be a, it has to be scarce rather not a deficit, but it has to be a scarcity of professors. You can't have too many professors because then what's it, it's like, that just seems absurd to me on his face. So I, I I understand that, and that actually kind of speaks to something interesting I just thought about. That what because I was just I, I cited that statistic from the U of M about how um in twenty by twenty twelve the administration had bloated by nine hundred percent two thousand eight to two thousand nah, two thousand seven to two thousand ten we'll say that was when my generation of millennials was graduating from college and we were coming right into the recession. So it's sort of like the motivation to create more jobs for this big influx of students or outflux, I should say, you know, was there. And it also ties into just so happens to tie into why the prevailing ideology, such as it is within academic administrations, to keep it specific to that, seems to all be what we now call wokeness. Because in 2012, 2013, we were talking about this before recording. That was when I started to hear about this stuff because I had friends who were still in academia and they were talking about it and they were talking about how it was becoming more prevalent. Because I remember like, you know, as soon as we started hearing about academia gone crazy, I I remember thinking, okay, was it really that crazy when I was in school? And I thought about it and I was like, well, we had activist groups and it was fine. It was like a club. You would just go hang out and, you know, talk about whatever politics were, you know, du jour amongst you and your friends in that group. But like, it wasn't like, there wasn't like crazy ideological takeovers going on. There wasn't controversies uh, on that level. So I was just thinking like, you know, having just, you know, left before that happened and then seeing the administrative bloat happening during that period of time leading up to when we started hearing about what we now call wokeness spreading everywhere. I'm starting to think that might be really what it is. What we're talking about here is the administrative bloat is bloating because people studied a lot of subjects that, you know, didn't really get them jobs, but they ended up thinking, oh, we can apply these ideas, these radical ideas into the, you know, workforce that we're doing. And perhaps it was even as overt as, you know, the existing administration saying we need to do, we need to make radical change and do things new because that is what Wall Street did after the financial crash. That's something, something that I spoke about in my podcast and Vivek Ramaswamy spoke about about how really when you look at the motivation of JP Morgan and Chase and um Goldman Sachs and so forth like why they suddenly pivoted towards being socially responsible it was because everyone in the United States hated them in the years mm-hmm. after the recession for good reason and we yeah. hated them even more after Obama's administration bailed them out i mean yeah, it just I'm, 
I'm sure you've seen occupied. I'm sure you've seen some of the memes where it's like, you know, 2009, you see like all the Occupy stuff outside of the Wall Street banks. And it's like, Uh you know, 2020 and it's like rainbow flags and Pride Week and whatever. It's like, yeah, (laughs) you're you're deflecting and distracting and using these causes as like human shields. Well, my favorite example uh, that Vivek Ramaswamy gave that I had to put in my episode was the story of Fearless Girl, which I've asked various friends and family, like, do you guys remember Fearless Girl? And a lot of them are like, no, not really. It was the, but but it, you'd understand why, because it made a big splash when it happened and then nobody talked about it afterward because that's just how the news goes. But uh, she was the bronze statue of the little girl. She, it was, was the little bronze statue of the girl. And they put it in front of the charging bull on Wall Street. And everyone in progressive media was like breathlessly talking about like how much of a statement this was that, oh, it was mostly like Wall Street's no longer a boys club. And this is reflecting that. But there were people who went so far as to say, oh, this is an anti-capitalist message with like a intersectional feminist angle on it or something. But the big sort of reveal of this, and maybe this is why people stopped talking about it, was the art wasn't just some piece of activist art. It was commissioned by State Street Global Advisors, mm-hmm. which is an investment strategy firm with assets in the literal trillions of dollars. <laughs> it has nothing to do with activism. It has nothing to do with principle. It has nothing to do with anything other than PR. And mm-hmm. that's it. And that's really, I think, at the core, that's the cynical part of stakeholder capitalism is that it has nothing to do with anything except making the companies look good so they can maximize their profits in the long run. Yeah, and I've heard um, various people say, and I haven't done it myself to verify, but I've got no reason to believe that they're making this up, that if you use, what is it, Nexus, where you can like keyword search media articles and find out like how- Nexus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can find out like how frequently are particular terms being used in the Mm -hmm. newspapers over time. And I've heard multiple people um, that I, I don't doubt that they're right about this say that if you do that, for keywords related to things we would think of as like woke causes, you know, like r- racial language and gender and, you know, all that, sexual yeah. orientation or whatever else that, that there is like this giant spike mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you had the 08 crash and then you had Occupy and then somewhere post Obama's reelection, it was around yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all of a sudden um, in terms of like how often are race issue terms coming up mm-hmm. in the major media? It's like, oh, it suddenly skyrockets off the charts. It's like, yeah, no, nobody was talking about systemic racism and, you know, yeah. all these other issues. And then all of a sudden, right, mm-hmm. as people are starting to, you know, all turn towards Wall Street and the political mm-hmm. apparatus that supports them and start sharpening their guillotines, all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, argue about this race and gender stuff, you know? I feel this is really gross to impugn, but you know what? I don't really give a shit because the media sucks. <laughs> so, uh, but um I find it hard to believe that they didn't see the murder of Trayvon Martin as a godsend. I mean, who knows how many people were pushing that story, like who had connections to Wall Street because they saw an opportunity to capitalize on the growing uh, BLM movement that came out of that. I don't even think I don't remember when BLM specifically started, but. I, I feel like if we're going to be cynical about this, we can say that that it, they use that story, that tragedy as a way to pivot the attention away from 
the class arguments that were coming out of New York specifically at that point. Um, and I think that's where the spike starts to happen. And then because that spike, that push for that story was so inherently divisive, it created an uptick of engagement. And therefore, there was all the incentive in the world to keep focusing on those stories that were happening all the time and give the illusion that there's some sort of epidemic going on of police killing young black men, which that had already been happening and it wasn't really that unique. And I'm sure there are people who could point to stats saying it's not even happening as, or it wasn't at that point happening even as much as it was like 20 years earlier. I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm just making the point that I think that the there was there was an artificial inflation of identity politic related stories and it is very suspicious that it happens so close to when the occupy movement was really you know dominating the news cycle like shortly thereafter yeah it's always worth asking like why do certain issues and stories get the spotlight they get when they get it you know, engagement because, yeah <laughs> because I, I i don't think that though that that's coincidence you know there's really questionable or worse cases of police uh killing people not just black people uh all the time mm-hmm. and you know why is it only at certain instances that you know one case gets the spotlight when you can find equally egregious or even worse cases you know a year earlier a few years later that get totally ignored mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, always the, suspicious to me because that, that's one of the key yeah. ways. That's one of the key ways to shape the news narrative is just simply by deciding what you what you put the spotlight on versus mm-hmm. what you turn a blind eye to. Yeah, and I think with the media, it's a, a lot of the time it has to do with engagement. I I I know for a fact that that's how news stories were pushed, at least on the local level at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I used to work for them too, actually, as a I was a comment moderator. So now, now your audience is going to hate me, but I was one of those people. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of way news stories were pushed. though, according to my dad who worked for them, a lot of the time was what's going to get the most engagement online. And it wasn't their fault. The Star Tribune, especially local papers, I tend to give a bit of a break because they are all dying. It's just, you know, it's just the way it is. Uh, they, they had to push engagement and engagement, is driven by divisive topics. I mean, I think as podcasters, we are aware of that, at least to some level. I mean, I won't pretend that I didn't call this episode stakeholder Nazism just in a neutral sense, because it is a, it, I, it's inherently divisive to invoke the Nazis. I mean, that's what Godwin's law is all about. Uh, but it, it garters attention. You have to get attention online. That's that's the first rule of content creation. And frankly, the news media is just as guilty of that. They shouldn't be, but I think that's just sort of a, an area they felt trapped in. But the sort of moral cost of that, as is what we're talking about here, I think is is pretty apparent. I think they are not letting certain stories and viewpoints get through because it doesn't create enough engagement. And then that in turn can, as time goes on, turn into an ideological concern. You're able to justify such cynical motives by really leaning into the critical social justice kind of you know mentality. Because if you do that, you can just explain away if somebody says, well, well then why are you leaning into all of these you know, engagement articles? Isn't that kind of cynical? Well, then you can say, well, you know, we're actually doing really important work here. We're actually trying to uh, 
we're, we're trying, we're, we're trying to make the world a better place. We're trying to see real progress, that kind of thing. They're able to justify it at that point. So that's why I think you can see such a sort of robust shift in that way. Now, I mean, talking about the media is interesting enough, but I mean, to be honest, I, I see the media sort of as the another peg, another element of the professional managerial class, ironically. And I don't know if that's always been the case, but it does seem to be seem to me that they're the sort of propagandists of that class. Uh, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that the the corporate, you know, media types, excluding the more independent voices, you know, in in podcasting and YouTube and whatever like that. But you know, when you're looking at the big newspaper firms mm-hmm. and TV uh, media corporations and whatever, that yeah, the the mid-level people in management in those organizations are whether the, again, whether they always really realize it consciously or not, they are functioning as propagandists and enforcers for their class. Mm-hmm. And it's this, you know, which is as, mostly upper middle class to upper class at this point in the, in, in media, I, I, I hate to throw another book at you, but if you read bad news, how woke media is destroying democracy by Batya Ungar Sargon, no, it rings a bell. I probably have heard her on like podcasts being interviewed or something, but I haven't read it. It's a fantastic book. And she talks about how like journalism went from being a blue collar profession to being a very upper middle class profession, especially at the big papers like the New York Times, Washington Post and so forth. Um, yeah, which, I, which is a similar thing. I've heard Matt Taibbi saying a bunch, right, you know, why, right. why is there this group think and this, you know, a desire to like be propagandists and protectors mm-hmm. of the elites amongst, you know, in, in contrast to the sort of old ideal of what Tell a reporter the truth. should be. Yeah. yeah, yeah speaking yeah, truth yeah. to power, exposing yeah. the dirty laundry of the elites, whether they're in government or in, in uh, the corporate world. Well, and that's the thing that's interesting about the PMC that um, Vivek Ramaswamy talked about that I just, it, it was the most challenging part of that book for me. And the most challenging part of this essay slash podcast I did where I was just like, think I'm too much of a cynic to believe, or at least I was to believe that people seek power for its own sake. I was just thinking like, that doesn't like people want money. They don't want power, but I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I I start to like see examples of this. I'm thinking like, I, I don't know about that, especially when the people who are working in media organizations, for example, are already relatively well off as far as their families go. And I don't think you're rich if you write for the New York Times. I don't think you make six figures a year. I could be wrong about that, but it doesn't strike me as a way to get rich. So that combined with something Ungar Sargon talked about in her book, which was, and I remember when this happened because my dad was bemoaning it because he was still working as a journalist then, especially with the younger generation, were encouraged to have an active social media presence online. That was an internal memo at the New York Times, basically saying, hey, all you guys need to be a have a presence on Twitter, which that strikes me as sort of the beginning of it. And then more and more people entered the profession where they thought that being notorious on Twitter, being notorious online, being known, being famous was more important than their job as journalists because that was being directed to them, frankly, by the managerial class at the New York Times and so forth. So – when you're talking about people who are looking for notoriety, unless there's some monetary value attached to that notoriety, like a book deal, which it can, sometimes that can happen, you're really talking about people who are just seeking fame, which is essentially the expression of power for its own sake. 
having the power of your Twitter followers, being Taylor Lorenz, uh, who, by the way, blocked me on Twitter, which is, I consider that an accomplishment. <laughs> um, but someone like her just, you know, saying all the shit that she says and getting like all of this engagement underneath her tweets, positive or negative, uh, that like gives her more purchase and people talk about her more in the culture, in the wider culture. So like that seems to be the end goal for a lot of people, at least in media. And it was directed by what is and was the PMC of the media, it sounds mm-hmm. like. So I'm thinking that like the pursuit of power for its own sake is very hard to sell to people. But I do think at least in some cases, it's relatively provable. And I think with the case of at least um, uh, journalists, it's provable. I think with the case of academic administration, it's provable because they get to control how everything is designed within a university, essentially. The part where I think people get lost, though, and this is hard for me to sort of justify, is why are there corporations that want political power. Like that's the part that I still struggle with, even though it's pretty clear they do seek influence in that manner. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Why corporations want political power? That's, right. Yeah. That's yeah. the question is make sure, making sure I understand it. So yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I want to make sure it's not too obvious either. Cause I'm just thinking like, well, there's some obvious answers there, but I want yeah, to let you yeah. say I mean, it. I, I think it's the, the, the same, you know, reason that uh, corporations wanted a say over what the British Parliament did in the 1700s or something right. like that. Okay. It's basically so that you can uh, reduce any competition that mm-hmm. you might be challenged with. So it's always a maximization and, of profit then. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah, yeah. And and just in, in general, protecting your position, I guess, because mm-hmm. once a corporation becomes a dominant firm or the dominant firm in a particular industry – Suddenly, they whoever is running it tends to not like competition anymore. You know, they, <laughs> right? Yeah they're, yeah, yeah. they're all about just free and fair, open market competition when they're the oh, new sure, up- yeah. upstart. You know. And, <laughs> well, wait. They, they um, it, isn't there like some some thinking out there that the East India Trading Company was effectively more powerful than the British Empire, at least economically? I would think they may have been at some point. Okay. You know, they they were really who took over India. Now right, they were one yeah. of these public private partnership chartered corporations. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's not like they're a pure free market entity. BP but, was like that too in the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the British always liked to do that. And they yeah. actually learned it from the Dutch who, as far as I can tell, really invented it. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, during the period from maybe like the mid 18th century, um, until the so-called Indian mutiny in the mid 19th century, when the company was really who was running India, like they sure. had their own entire private military. It was technically the corporation's army that probably I would guess, at least in peacetime, was probably bigger than the British army in peacetime. We should be worried if Facebook end up, ends up developing a sort of private militia. Defense. Well, maybe they have one and we just don't know about it. I don't know. <laughs> they probably have some people from uh, what was it? Uh, not BlackRock. That's the wrong company. Uh what was the one that was in uh what was the 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 uh XI was she I think is what they what they ended up rebranding as a PM the, the other PMC private military company Blackwater um, Blackwater that's it yeah BlackRock the, the, the Black other Rock, ones yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if these like massive companies that probably have some open ended contracts with the Blackwaters of the world just in case you never know yeah <laughs> that's my conspiratorial thinking for the day <laughs> yeah well I mean the 
the there's a whole you know long history of political entrepreneurship right and it's often more cost effective to have political influence than to invest more money in your r&d that's why right. most major corporations for at least like the last i don't know 50 60 years in america have typically invested far more every year in buying political influence like lobbying they do and stuff R&D. yeah yeah, than yeah. They do in R&D. it might so, explain why why the metaverse is so crappy <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the footage of that. It's like, uh, it's like graphics from like the mid two thousands. I don't understand like why Zuck thought that was a good idea, but that I don't know. Yeah, and and I think it just magnifies the tendency of like bigger, more established firms to be less innovative. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And and where the innovation typically comes from, you know, the new upstarts and whatever. Um, but it's also also by buying political influence, you um, you know, depending on what industry you're in, but increasingly almost any giant corporation has the potential for lucrative government contracts. I mean, Am- Amazon, you know, gets tons of money from the CIA for doing their <laughs> posting for them or whatever it is, storing their yeah, data yeah. or something. Uh, and, you know, so there's that angle. And then there's also the when things go sideways, uh, which corporations get bailed out and which don't. So there's there's that, too, as your as your safety blanket for your company. It's it's nice to invest ahead of time before a crisis occurs so that you already own, you know, you've already been uh, donating to all the top people in Congress for 20 years when things go bad and then it's easy to get your bailout, you know. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a bunch of different motivations at, at play there. Um, but I wanted to to jump back to something you were talking about a minute ago. So when you were mentioning the fact that the media class is much more not like at the top of the elites, but much more from a more privileged class than historically they have been where, you know, at, at least the regular reporters yeah, it, anyway. It were, kind of, it, it began like at, it was the generation after both, both my parents were journalists and it was the gener it, like they were the first sort of primarily college educated generation, but they were by no means like upper middle class or anything like that. They were, they still were able to pay their way mm. through school, which is wild to imagine, but yeah. Yeah. But like it was the generation after them and then after them and after them and up to our generation and the younger generation that the class got higher and like, you know, further up the higher, the class hierarchy mm. of our country that then started dominating the field. Yeah. Yeah. And that made me think that, you know, this is a trend that's in so many different professions and institutions sure. really that it made me think even of Hollywood, where if, you know, and, and some of the the great uh, critics of wokeism in film and television that I follow on YouTube have brought this up, where if you go back a few generations and look at the the biographies of a lot of the leading actors and even directors, they often were from humble origins. Um, they often were not originally from Hollywood geographically. They were, you know, grew up working class in the Rust Belt or whatever, you know, or the, 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 the New York generation, Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, all of them. I'm pretty sure all of them came from not, maybe not working class back, probably working class backgrounds in a lot of cases, but yeah, you're right. And they weren't even in Hollywood either. They had their own flavor and that's what made them so fresh and and interesting that a lot of the, the old school actors and even directors had like worked some shitty jobs before they landed their big, you know, success in Hollywood. So like they, they, uh, they understood regular people. They maybe eventually ended up in a bubble, but they at least had spent a lot of their formative years, not in this elite Hollywood bubble that we think of. And now increasingly everybody from the directors to the actors, to even the screenwriters, they're often people who grew up relatively affluent in Hollywood or some other, you know, elite place, like one of the fancier parts of the New York metropolitan area. 
Um, very mm-hmm. often there's a nepotism angle where their parents were in show business. And so, and you could, you could see this in, in varying degrees in many different institutions and professions where, you know, class mobility in America was never, never lived up to the hype, right? Of, of, oh, this is just a complete, you know, tabula rasa place where anybody can, you know, go from rags to riches, but it's become increasingly less true. The class mobility right. legend yeah. is like absolutely further divorced from reality than it ever was where, you know, increasingly the, the people who are running Hollywood and making the movies and starring in them and writing them, they're people who've like never even worked a real job. Um, they're, they're, they're people who have only ever lived in affluent Hollywood suburbs. And so no wonder all their fricking movies and scripts are the same. And, you know, <laughs> because they're just writing about they're writing what they know and all they know is like liberal Hollywood elite bubbles. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. similarly with no, journalists sure. and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so, there's there's no longer the circulation of like new blood into some of these professions and some of these elite classes you know a, a lot of the guys who were like the the great directors and actors of the mid 20th century a lot of them fought in world war ii um and it, and it worked <laughs> yeah, shitty jobs true. you know in a factory at some point or or you know been a yeah. coal miner when they were younger and so they had this you know, relatability where even, even when they became big stars, they, they still, you know, were not completely cut off from regular people. There's like an interesting though, sort of like, I think there's a cultural angle too, that goes kind of beyond the class angle, because then you think about someone like George Lucas, who, as far as I know, came from a relatively upper middle-class background from Northern California. I'm, I might be remembering that wrong where he was from, but he didn't come from, it wasn't really rags to riches in his case. He was relatively okay, but he yet still understood at some level that people don't want to be preached at. They want to be entertained. Hence why, I mean, yeah, granted empire strikes back and return of the Jedi were really, they didn't really involve him at all, or at least uh, empire didn't, but no one can say that the original star Wars is a bad movie. I mean, he made that movie because he thought uh, it was one was a throwback to stuff that he watched as a kid, which is great. You know, that's right there is, you know, why Tarantino is so successful in a lot of ways. But he also was thinking like, okay, well, I want people to feel the feeling that I feel when I think about uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces. I want people to to feel that uh, that progression. And that's. That's apolitical. I mean, yeah, you could do the postmodern thing and say, well, there's inherent politics behind all this, but that's not why the movie was successful. The movie wasn't successful because it was a secret white supremacist tract. It was successful because it was very basic, straightforward, and not infected with a desire to be seen as smart, which is frankly what I think motivates a lot of people in general. I mean, to a degree, it motivates me to do podcasting. I like to like let people know what I know about history. So I totally relate to that impulse. But if I was to make a movie, I'm not going to do that. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see characters say, like, nobody wants to see characters express how smart the director is, the writer is, you know what I mean? And that's why Star Wars is so successful and why there was some sort of inoculation in that era, because you could also probably point to Spielberg. I didn't see that movie he did, uh, Meet the Fablemans. I've heard it's fine. Um, but the impression I get is he was also pretty firmly middle class. But like he wasn't like there there wasn't a cultural need for that generation of filmmakers in the 70s and 80s 
to basically pontificate about how the world should be, or at least not as obviously. If they had propaganda in their films, they were way better at hiding it than today. And that what that says to me, though, is that the need to do that is a cultural one as well as an economic. The economic one makes it much more likely to be that insular, as you pointed out. But there must have been a cultural shift at some point earlier on that that changed that. And I'm not really quite sure what that might be. I guess we should just say it was Trump, just to make it easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there there is a, a like a generational shift, and yeah, it seems like in show business in particular, it was accelerated by Me Too, and the oh, way yeah. in which oh, that yeah. was, you know, cynically used by by certain people mm-hmm. in Hollywood to enhance their own position and kind of purge the ranks of their their seniors and their competitors you know Mm -hmm. well we know that it was like so much of it was was rooted in a sort of internal battle you could call it corruption but i think that that's sort of the norm for hollywood frankly um uh but the the dissolution of the time's up organization due to bad behavior within its walls and so forth it it shows to me that like this was i mean it's funny you bring this up because i was just talking in my last episode where i teamed up with Greg Zink of Smoke-Filled Rooms where we talked about his um his series on Marilyn Monroe and her mysterious death along with the uh, movie Blonde which by the way people should see it's an incredible film like it it really does we were talking about this like about how what the movie Blonde said but also just more broadly what anyone who studies Hollywood especially in the true crime context tends to come away with which is a realization that any attempt to reform itself from within it's always just another performance. They've, they've been doing this since the beginning. I, I always, I, I guess I should take the opportunity to shout out my favorite own episode, which is my two-parter on Hollywood back. There was like my fourth episode called the great Hollywood cover-up where I talked about literally a hundred years ago, a director was murdered. The studio covered it up and there was never any justice done for it. It's just an unsolved murder when the likelihood is it was a scandal for them and they just didn't want it to get, you know, to get blown out of proportion. The Fatty Arbuckle scandal had just happened, which again, that turned out to be another hit job put on somebody. The point is Hollywood, I think, is a a very interesting element of this conversation because it kind of exists separate from all the other things we've been talking about, it's its own kind of state. I really do think that that's sort of how it operates, but it also is a propagandistic influence on the very things we're talking about. They're just sort of like, well, I don't know, maybe they have more corporate ties now that I think about it than, you know, I guess you could probably lump in Disney with like this whole milieu of companies captured by a professional managerial class. But uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that, yeah, it's it's very much part of this uh, this uh loose uh you call it an ecosystem i think of pmc driven organizations and influence and so forth yeah it seems like hollywood is just like a a bizarre like you, you take this phenomenon from a, a more kind of standard bureaucratic company or or government institution and like i don't know put it on a whole bunch of powerful drugs so that it's just like everything's exaggerated and ludicrous and whatever and like there you go that's hollywood right you got to give i get you got to give the regular news media credit they with the exceptions of places like msnbc they tend to be much subtler than hollywood with what they're trying to tell you it's it's weird to think that like actual opinion-based news is subtler than a movie (laughs) but here we are yeah well one of the points that 
you made in your stakeholder Nazis episode that really struck a chord with me was when you said that the PMC, the professional managerial class, they are not creative. Like they just, they just are not those kinds of people. They might think they are, but they're not. Mm -hmm. And so like, they're never the people that create a new product or found a new, a new uh, company. They're the people who come in and take it over um, once it's already up and running and, and the actual creative people have already done the creative work. And um, in Hollywood, I think that part of what's going on that's making movies and TV for the last six, seven years be so, you know, uh, cringe so often is that you have, you have the PMC of Hollywood who are not creative. They, they're not, you know, they don't have that, that psychology and that personality. Many of them think they do and aspire to, and they've been mm-hmm. able to in various ways, uh, often capitalizing on the whole wokeness movement. They've been able to insert themselves into what should be creatives jobs or uh, right. if not that, then at least positions in the corporation where managing the creatives. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Where, where they're, they're deciding who, who's going to be, you know, the director of this new show. And then they're making those choices, not based on who actually is the, the best creative person with the most, the best ideas, but, but instead, you know, using woke diversity box checklists of like, well, let's uh, bring in this, uh, you know, one-armed blind uh, trans uh, tri-racial Asian. <laughs> I was going to say Thai lady boy or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, meanwhile, the the actual best writer for that particular project might be Gasp, a straight white male. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, um, the, but, you know, right. check the boxes. Well, the part so that makes that. me like, you know, I, I, I like to say these kinds of things to appeal to the more liberal sensibilities out there to anybody listening. But like the part that always makes me so sad is like when I hear someone who agrees with the premise we're talking about because it's not even – like controversial to say that that's how things are done in Hollywood at this point, uh, that basically people, there might've been a bias before, but instead of just correcting the bias, they just reverse the bias, which is, you know, that's not a solution. Uh, but what I've, what I, when people have agreed to that premise, they've said, well, like, isn't that just so insulting if you're a creator of color or a, a woman and you're just being used because you're, you fit the boxes. And I say, well, yeah, it is insulting, but what they don't have a choice. Like if you're creative in Hollywood, any you talk to any creative in Hollywood who hasn't quote unquote made it, they are struggling. Like they they, they will do anything. And that kind of fits into the whole Me Too thing, but that's another story. <laughs> they will do anything to get involved. They will do anything to get their voice heard. They'll do anything to be appreciated for their work, even if that means they're being appreciated for the quote unquote wrong reason. It's like they don't have the luxury of having, you know a principle of dignity like and it doesn't matter what their identity is white black gay straight man woman doesn't matter you do not have the privilege of dignity in hollywood it just isn't there and i think that by racializing it or genderizing it which isn't a word but whatever you are not only insulting them you're doing a major disservice to the creative process too and i think that that's just one of those things that i think people need to accept is that hollywood is just never going to be truly meritocratic because this is not in their interest to that's why casting decisions like people don't understand this either it's always been does the person look right they don't care about the acting performance i said this in my episode with greg if i remember right it's always been what you look like 
it's always just been, does this person look the part? And we just so happen now to be saying looking the part means you check a diversity box. It's just the way it is. Hate to be depressing like that, but <laughs> that's like, yeah. And I think it, and, and I think it does actually tie to what you were saying though, or referring to from what I put in my uh, episode that that's what happens when non-creative people run creative businesses or creative enterprises, if you will, because they don't think about things in the, in a truly meritocratic sense. They think about things in terms of what's going to look the best for what we're trying to put out. And that is determined you would think it's determined by the market, but it's not. It's not even determined by the market either. It's determined by the PMC at this point. Well, and it strikes me that there's always been non-creatives in in show business, yeah. often wielding tremendous power. Um, you know, if, especially if like they're the executives of some big corporation that owns some studio or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that that one of the things that's changed though is that the the non-creatives in show business traditionally were first and foremost just profit and loss focused. Right. It was just what's going to make me money mm-hmm. and I'll do that. And that was the thing that sometimes interfered with the creative process of like the directors and the writers trying to, you know, follow their vision. And what's changed now is that more of the people in those positions, profit and loss isn't even like the top of their list anymore. Right. It seems like anyway, that pursuing this ideology, this well, I mean, the thing is like that ideology, again, is PR. It's good PR if you – I mean, ostensibly, it is good PR if you are – well, what was his name? Bob uh, Bob uh, Chapek was fired from Disney and they brought Bob Iger back. So I don't know what's going on there. But ostensibly, if you are Bob Iger, we'll say, and you espouse the importance of DEI and so forth and put that in your product, even if – we'll say even a majority of Americans hate it it's still better for your bottom line is how they see it. It's a connection of, of like, you know, ideological capture and a desire to be as least controversial as possible, because even if most Americans hate, you know, a woke message and whatever the, the little mermaid remake or whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is, even if the majority of customers hate it, it's better that they hate it than uh, that then uh, they not do it or they go back on it or they even criticize previous attempts at being woke or whatever because the backlash they'll receive online is such bad PR as they see it. I think they overestimate how bad the PR would be. I think actually there would end up being a lot more support for it. Uh, I think the best move though is just to not address it at all and just start making the moves that that Tom Cruise is always making. I still haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, but everything I've heard about it is that it's about as just apolitical as it gets. It doesn't try to shove any message down your throat. It's just a good movie. And that's what they're going for. And they're just not even addressing any of this stuff. And that's why it did so well in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I would criticize it and it was, it was almost, I, I almost felt that it was like, quaint and comforting because my main criticism of that movie is that it's like its predecessor you know pentagon sponsored yeah yeah and yeah. it's a commercial for the navy sure yeah and whatever but it's a very well done commercial for the, navy. the best it's, it's, <laughs> it's arguably better than the original in in terms of being a good movie and so, man, I, I felt like nostalgic. I was yeah. like, yeah, you know, remember when you go to the movies and you just get a commercial for the Pentagon yeah, yeah, military yeah. industrial complex and they weren't trying to berate <laughs> you about your white privilege and all this shit? Yeah, you know? it wasn't She-Hulk. Um, 
yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or God forbid, Velma. Yeah. Oh, I've heard. I, don't, I kind oh. of want to watch Velma, to be honest. It sounds like it's so bad it might actually be entertaining. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've. I, I, I don't I don't have any HBO subscriptions oh, okay, or whatever. Okay. And, you know, I'm not ambitious enough to go track it down on Pirate <laughs> Bay or something. Um, but I've seen enough clips of it on on the channels of YouTube reviewers that I follow that like, wow, it, it really is um, about as bad it, as like, you'd expect. Reached, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's reached the point where where if you told me that. Um, as some people have been joking that Mindy Kaling is actually a secret hardcore alt writer yeah, and she's a yeah, doing this yeah, as a parody. Like, I don't actually believe that, but if somehow that came out that that was the case, I'd be like, okay. Yeah, probably. Yeah, Cause yeah. it's so over the top. Well, it's like, this could be a parody making fun of wokeness. It's so ridiculous. I mean, she's got like, like four or five anti-white people, racial epithets in like each episode, you know, it's, it's <laughs> like th- this show is saying the quiet part out loud when it comes to what's really behind the woke ideology for the true believers. Well, and the funny thing I like to say about that kind of stuff is that it's not that I'm offended, I, like as a white guy, when that kind of stuff happens. It's more when I just think when I say it's a bad idea, I just mean it's a bad idea. You're just alienating your audience that way. Like at a certain point, people just don't like racial jokes anymore. It's like you can start out maybe with some good sort of like haha, aren't white people funny kind of jokes, like which I'm pretty sure have existed for decades at this yeah. point, and that's fine. Like I mean, actually. I can think of a few, I can think of, um, uh, uh, there was a, there was a few jokes in like airplane, the first airplane that were like at the expense of white people, like trying to be cool and oh, shit sure. like and that. Lots I mean, of the greatest, uh, black stand-up comedians would poke fun right. at white people. Richard Pryor. Yeah, Richard Pryor exactly. And, you know, Chris Rock and like all, all these, you know, all time great black blazing saddles yeah, right there. Yeah. But, yeah. but the difference is, I think those were actually funny. Number one, yeah. which the stuff in well, Delta yeah. is not funny. Um, <laughs> and, and secondly, like you could tell that in, in those, those uh, contexts of these older, you know, comedians and movies and whatever, you could tell that it, there wasn't like genuine hatred behind it. And, right. You know, yeah. it's, it's the same way that like a comedian can kind of, you know, maybe not as much today as they used to, but up until a decade ago, a stand-up comedian uh, could like poke fun at just about any ethnic group. And as long as right. it was a genuinely funny and B people kind of tell like, yeah, this guy is not actually hateful. He's just trying to make people laugh. It was, it was no big deal. Um, Thankfully there are some comics who do kind of still adhere to that. Like Russell Peters comes to mind. He's mm-hmm. one of those guys whose crowd work is very Don Rickles esque and he spares nobody. I mean, it's the, uh, the South park principle. Nobody, nobody is immune from being a target. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, I think that that's always going to be the thing that ends up like um, being sustainable long-term as far as entertainment goes. And I think, as you say, whether or not there's actual contempt in the comedy, it feels like there is. And that's not funny. People don't like that. Even people it's not directed at don't like that. Like, it's sort of like um, if you see a a stand-up comic, like, I mean, I've gone to a number of comedy shows at like the comedy store here just on a random night of the week. And that's when you get to see comics working out their material, but you also get to see comics who aren't famous, who just have no clout whatsoever. And you get to see them try to do, try their hand at, you know, ethnic jokes. And, you know, there was one guy, he was a white guy who was trying to make a joke at the expense of uh, Mexicans because, you know, we live in LA. And it just wasn't funny and it was actually kind of uncomfortable because he was just saying stereotypes and not in a funny way. He wasn't commenting on the stereotypes. So it was just kind of like, 
isn't it funny that Mexicans do this? And I'm like, no, because that's not necessarily true. And I think that's the same reason why jokes in shows like Velma or whatever, like, you know, the just fall flat. It's because people generally just don't like that kind of humor. There has to be something transgressive about that. And just talking about how white people suck isn't transgressive. It's just lazy is what it is. Especially when you're doing it in a context where you know that that's the one group that you are allowed to hate on with no consequences. And in fact, you'll get, you know, more often than not, you'll get praise from the powers that be for that. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. Not that I'm arguing in favor of like, I don't know, making fun of black people or whatever, but, but at least you could say in defense of that, that it is transgressive, you know, may or may not be funny, may or may not be in good taste, whatever, but um, at, at least that's genuinely going off the reservation a bit, which I guess we're not even supposed right. to use that There's, phrase anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. You can't <laughs> say that. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I do understand what you're saying too. And I, and I think that like, there is this, um, uh, cause I, I know when you and I talk, we tend to get sidetracked in Hollywood because I think it's a shared interest we have about just how crazy it's gotten, but it does relate because there is something that I think has infected the PMC, but I think Hollywood is part of that. And it's what the, um, I think she's like a straight up Marxist, uh, this, uh, writer and uh, professor down at UC Irvine and Catherine Liu wrote where she was talking about how there's an antagonism towards what was mainstream culture, in order to feel transgressive. Like that's how it started, you know, in the era we were talking about before the, you know, late sixties, early seventies, the golden age of Hollywood, as people call it. And then that became mainstream, but there was no adjustment. It's like everything that animated that the transgressions became an aesthetic pose. And then because it happened to be left wing at the time, like part of the new left, as it were, it got attached to that ideology. And then, the mainstream obsession with transgressing on progressive terms then kind of just uh, like became what it meant to be mainstream, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's kind of um, like epitomized maybe in a little bit earlier time period, but by, you know, the, the affluent suburban high school student with like the Che Guevara t-shirt or whatever. It's like, Oh, okay. You know, Um, woo, rebellious now. All right. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that like that, um, that does kind of bleed into, like you, again, we we're talking about Hollywood because it's the most apparent in Hollywood, but it bleeds into every realm of what we can now call the managerial class in different sectors is they all seem to be the ones who push this notion of transgressive progressivism, uh, as, or rather this, this version of progressivism as transgressive, I should say. And like, including, um, like uh, uh who was that guy was he the head of the defense department the 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 general saying that he wants to understand critical race theory yeah, as much yeah, as possible somebody. or whatever yeah. like it it strikes me as just one of those things where it's like the, these things are not transgressive in the way i think these people think they are i think they're transgressive in that they're regressive they they might sound new but they are engaging especially in the racial politics realm, they're engaging in very regressive thinking that just has a sort of like new aesthetic coat of paint on it. It really just doesn't, it, there's really no other way to explain it. Like I get it that it's boring to talk about colorblindness. And I think that's really what animates people who say that colorblindness is actually a form of racism. No, I think colorblindness is just boring. People don't want to be bored. They don't want to have a, a boring worldview on race. So they want to be interesting in that respect. Again, it's the desire for transgressiveness right there. 
Yeah. So the professional managerial class is glomming on to this ideology of stakeholders and, you know, wokeness and whatever like that, I guess in part, because as you say, they're very self-interested. They, Mm -hmm. they very much are like class warriors for their class interests, but they don't want to think of themselves that way. So in part, this glomming on to these social causes and movements and whatever mm-hmm. is is a way to shield themselves from being found out that, that they're actually these very self-interested class warriors for their interests, uh, for their own interests. Well, that becomes much more obvious in Hollywood. In Hollywood, that's without question, because I think to thrive in Hollywood, you have to have a bit of a narcissistic chip on your shoulder in a way. I mean, it's just it's in your best interest to have high self-regard if you're in Hollywood. Yeah. And and in general, people don't want to often consciously admit uh, some of their baser motivations. Right. Right. I mean, this is why criminals will very often have an elaborate justification for the crimes they committed, where they're just like, well, actually, that guy deserved me to rob him or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, And they have this whole because other than a a psychopath who's, you know, taking the mask off, most people are not going to be like, yeah, I did what I did because I wanted to to enrich myself mm-hmm. or, or you know grab more power for myself right and so they they glom on to these movements and these virtue signal campaigns and whatever like in part for exoteric reasons of of like shielding themselves from being found out by outsiders uh-huh. um and cloaking cloaking their their self-interest in virtue um but then also for their own psychological edification to to not have to look in the mirror and go uh you know why am i actually operating the way i'm operating and Again, you know, some of the stuff you mentioned about academia really resonated with me because of my experience. And, um, you know, I, I love, by the way, the phrase uh, when you said that university cities are the new company towns. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, that really resonated with me. Um, you know, well, I think that's but, just sort of the future in general of uh, anything that has a PMC dominant uh, within it. Like we have corporate towns, especially up in Silicon Valley. You know, I mean, they have, you know, campuses, quote unquote. A campus is sort of the new phrase for company town, I think, in general, not just with academia, though. Hollywood has been a company town for over a 100 years. That's kind of a foregone conclusion. But yeah, I think, I mean, it's sort of like how um, it's uh, what uh, I think his name is Neil Kotkin. He had a book called The Coming of Neo-Feudalism is what he's talking about there, is how we essentially are putting ourselves in in this situation that hasn't been seen since the Gilded Age. And I've heard very compelling arguments that we li- are living in a second Gilded Age in a lot of ways. And it would track with a lot of the similar uh, events that happened about 150 years ago or so. Uh, that was actually the first episode I ever did was talking about the 1870s populist backlash that Neil Ferguson uh, invoked in a talk he gave where he said, look, Donald Trump isn't Hitler. He's more like this weirdo. Irish demagogue in California named Dennis Kearney, who invoked the and created the term the Chinese must go. It's very it's very clear that we're talking about populist demagoguery these days, not fascism, unless we're talking about stakeholder uh, capitalism, because that does have more similarities to fascism than populism. Yeah, yeah. The people who would be the quickest to point the finger at, you know, their rivals and opponents as fascists. And the the most comfortable, like embracing the term anti-fascist for themselves right. are ironically the ones that actually share the most characteristics in terms of how they operate. Right. I mean, invoking fascism is just such a – this is one reason I was just kind of like there, – there was the entire time I was writing the original essay and even again while I was – it had been out for months at that point. 
And then while I was recording the audio version into the podcast form that you heard, I kept thinking like, I am being such a hypocrite right now because I'm invoking Nazism, but I'm at least trying, I'm trying to explain it because <laughs> uh, it is kind of a cliche to invoke fascism for anybody to invoke fascism, honestly. But, you know, I, you know, I, my critique is coming from a, you know, a sort of, I don't know what, what ideological space is coming from. I mean, cause I still have a hard time defining myself, but it definitely is more refreshing to be coming from what I guess you could call an anti-woke space to uh, compare things to Nazism rather than communism. Because again, the communist description just doesn't track with me. It's like, yeah, aesthetically in some cases, sure, but just politically and logistically not even close. It's, it's much more about consolidation of corporate power at the end of the day. Yeah. And with, with academia, I, I don't think most people realize quite how, how exploitative it is sure and how how rigidly um caste based it is Mm -hmm. and using credentialism and so you know you you mentioned the gilded age the original gilded age in a way i think this one uh, if we're to say this is a second gilded age is worse sure uh and i would say it's worse because um uh, credentialism Mm -hmm. and professionalization quote unquote are so much more advanced so that there is less capability for like rags to riches, you know, self-made men type scenarios to happen because in so many things that you used to not need formal degrees and credentials for now, it, you rigidly have to. And academia right. is like the, the biggest, you know, example well, of the profiteers of from that. I mean, they're the main beneficiaries of, uh, of credentialism. I would think I, I got, yeah. I, I, yeah. I got to ask, uh, because I, I can't, I can never let you, uh, go without, talking about Wilson a little bit, how does Wilson fit into this? Because he was a big fan of credentialism, if memory serves, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was part of the broader movement of these um, progressive academics who pushed for uh, credentialism and professionalization. And, you know, like so many things, a lot of it sounds benevolent right you know, of like, benign we're going to yeah. have more yeah yeah we're going to have more um you know consistent standards for certain degrees and professions and like okay like i get you don't want the quack snake oil salesman to be able to legally call himself a doctor yeah um you know like there are certain things where okay you know reasonable people would probably agree on that but you know this idea that like you cannot teach certain levels of a certain subject unless you have these rigid degrees. I mean, I ran right. into it personally when I was in, in academia multiple times, you know, certain jobs and uh, I, I know I could have done just fine, mm-hmm. just flat out wouldn't even be considered for because of credentialism. Oh, Cause they were like, we're looking for someone with two PhDs or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even, um, you know, one example I've mentioned uh, before is uh, when I was first teaching Florida history at the college level, halfway through the semester, um, one of my administrators is like, you know, I was just going through your transcripts and um, you don't have a graduate level credit, you know, in Florida history specific credit. It was over a credit. Well, it was, it was you know, three, three credits. Sure, like a course. sure, sure. But um, it's three but credits. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, and, I, I, and to be fair, like she was trying to be on my side, but sure. her hands were tied oh, by, yeah. the, by the rules and whatever. And I wrote back a whole long email and I was like, yeah, you know, technically I don't have any graduate level credits in Florida history, uh, but I, you know, I took a, 
a senior seminar in Florida history when I was an undergrad. You know, I'm, a, I'm at the time I was a member of the Florida Historical Society. I, I read their journal. You clearly I've, have like experience know, and knowledge of yeah, this yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I, I listed a whole long list of things. And, and then I was like, also, by the way, I've been teaching this class for half a semester so far. Yeah. And the students seem to love it and think I'm doing a good job and whatever. And, you know, it was just like, sorry, if you don't have those credits, uh, you can't. Now, they they did allow me to finish off the semester because I already had like a dozen students in the class and it was sure. halfway over. But I wasn't allowed to teach it again until I got those credits. Now, again, I'm not trying to complain too much about my specific administrators because they helped me out. Right, right. They actually, you know, funded me to then take so a they, graduate level. I was going to ask, so they, gave, they gave you, the, I mean, essentially, they, they gave you the credits to take the class. Like, you didn't have to pay for them. They didn't take yeah, it out exactly. of your paycheck. They, okay, They, they paid for me to take one graduate level course. Oh, see, that's, that's the up, right thing right there, I would say. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, I'm not so much complaining against them specifically because they did what they could to help me out in right. that, that uh, instance. But more to illustrate the, the point of, like, there's these rigid rules. And it's right. like, it doesn't matter. Whereas in... In jobs that are less rigidly credentialist, very often, even if there are like degree requirements, they can be waived or bended if a person demonstrates they can clearly do the job, you know? Right. Um, well, like but, it's, it's, but in academia, it's the opposite extreme. It sounds like they've really like uh, managed to do that with journalism. I mean, over the years, it's been a long time at this point, but like it's again, what Batya Unger Sargon talked about in her book about how it became a credentialed position. There's plenty of examples of journalists from technically not that long. I mean, by now they're either all retired or dead, but you know, just a generation before my parents, I mean, my, my mom, I was talking to her, she was visiting recently and I, I just started reading that book and I was asking her, I was like, okay, so when you started, how many people in the professional or working class, broadly speaking, and she was like at least half. And I was like, how many of them had, had like, didn't even have college degrees. And she was like a lot of them. They just they got sure. in either at the at the mailroom level or they even just got a gig at a small local paper right out of high school and just started working and producing good copy and then they were able to work their way to a bigger paper in the state and then some of them even went on to like the Washington Post and the New York Times. I mean it was it really was a sort of like upwardly mobile profession at you know especially into the 70s and and 80s and then it just started to turn into a you know, a, uh, a credentialed like profession as, as opposed to like a craft, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Well, in, in a lot of academic disciplines, when I, the time period when I would have been a little kid, yeah. uh, you could often still potentially get jobs uh, full-time at universities with just a master's in yeah. many, uh, fields. Now, so, now it's like small, like you can still teach at a community college level with a master's degree, right? Usually, yeah, full time. But okay. but um, when you apply, there will be like a hundred people with PhDs also applying for that one job. Jeez, because <laughs> um, I've been on the other, I've been sure. on the hiring side, okay. um, a bunch of times. And but um, when I I taught for one semester as an adjunct at Jacksonville University, which is a private college and fairly you know not top of the line, but a, a pretty I mean, high I've heard of it. So yeah, school. sure, yeah. sure, yeah. And in that job. My my supervisor, uh, my direct supervisor there was a full time um, history teacher, and he was a full full time professor there. Had been there for like around thirty years. Wow! And he only had a master. Was he tenured too? But um, I think so. Okay, you I would think, think so. at thirty years he would be, but regardless, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But 
you know, he was able to back in whenever it would have been early eighties or late seventies or something, he was able to get hired full-time at Jacksonville university with just a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was talking to him about it, some, at some point, um, real nice guy, I really liked him, but, um, he, he basically was like, yeah, what I did is just simply impossible now. Like other than community colleges, nobody's even going to glance at your application if you don't have a PhD in whatever it is for a full-time And job. even with a PhD, it's not even as much of a guarantee as it used to be either. I mean, I... Oh yeah, because a, a, a thousand other people have a PhD degree, so... One of my favorite teachers, my my friend Kel, who I have stayed in touch with, he I took like four of his classes and he's actually kind of the reason I got a uh, a minor in cinema studies actually because he taught some he saw, he taught a really cool class uh called violence in cinema it was really interesting and also it gave me a window into what people call postmodernism uh in academia and I, I I I'm gonna sound like Thaddeus Russell it's not all bad it's actually a lot of it's very interesting and really cool especially in the context of film studies but regardless he had a PhD he could never secure a full time job at the University of Minnesota he he wasn't able to and. I've even heard, I'd have to look into this more deeply, but I did, I have heard people say that even tenure doesn't save you anymore. They just don't, they don't like that. I mean, and again, that speaks to the corporatization of academia, which is large part been fueled by the explosion of the managerial class Mm -hmm. taking over within academia. They're the ones who want the long-term careers there. Mm -hmm. And it just... It's one of those things that like, again, outside of academia, you can maybe make some arguments, but inside academia, it's without question. It was a hostile takeover in a lot of cases, at least by the administrative state. Yeah. And a lot of people are starting to realize how much the students are the, the exploited of academia where they're, you know, getting gouged for like a mortgage, but no home and a degree that, you know, isn't going to give you the golden ticket to middle-class employment like it did 50 years ago. But then the the other group that often gets overlooked that are exploited as well, and in some ways, sometimes worse, are the adjuncts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a huge percentage of, of the actual teachers doing the yeah. actual core function of the institution at most colleges and universities are and have been for a while adjuncts mm-hmm. who, you know, get paid significantly less uh, per you know, class they teach. And then, you know, in most instances get zero benefits. Right. Um, right. And, and really they are, they're kind of like the, the proletarian class um, yeah. of, of academia. And they're, they're sort of like the equivalent in Hollywood of like a wannabe actor who's maybe yeah. getting some work as an extra, but he's also waiting tables. And like, he is so desperate to get yeah. a real role that like, he'll do just about anything. He'll, he'll say he believes in whatever stupid thing he has to say. I, I was going to say how much, how much of that really, fe- I mean, cause I was saying that about actors earlier or writers. It's like, you know, what choice do they have? They're kind of trapped in that situation. It sounds like it's similar in academia. If you, I mean, yeah, and, and in a way it's horrible <laughs> in a way it's sadder because like with an, with an aspiring actor, at least probably in, in his mind is, you know, if I make it big, I'll have millions of dollars and, you know, yeah. be this famous celebrity. And and with a like an adjunct who's desperate to get a full-time job in academia, it's like you're someone who's making like 30, 30,000 a year if yeah. you're teaching a ton of classes as an adjunct. Yeah. You're maybe you're also than, yeah, 40 yeah, hours a week, way more than that. It yeah, sounds like maybe you're doing yeah. various other part-time jobs on the side at different points and whatever just to pay your bills. You got, mm-hmm. you know, little or no benefits. And like you're desperate to get a job that pays maybe twice that 
a living wage, a basically. Benefits, you know? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. You're you're desperate to you know get a get a full time gig where you're making not much. I mean, it, it is it is sad what um, community college full time uh, uh, professors make. I can I can tell you, like we had decent benefits, but you know, I was making less than a lot of high school teachers. Oh, geez. Don't tell me that. I'm about to try to try. I'm, I think I've told you before. I'm trying my hand at getting back into academics. I want to get a master's in history. I might just take uh, take the degree and run and just be like, I'm not going to even try to get a job here. I mean, but that's not even to speak to the whole endowment aspect of like the bigger universities. I I have a lot of issues with Malcolm Gladwell, uh, but you might have heard. I know Sagar and Jetty on Breaking Points talked about this. Uh, he covered Malcolm Gladwell's recent, semi-recent essay called Princeton University is America or is the world's first perpetual motion machine. <laughs> and thanks to its endowment, it could, uh, its endowments and uh, thanks to funding it gets, uh, well, that's, yeah, basically it. It wouldn't have to charge tuition mm-hmm. for its students. It could just let them in for free and give them all of these amenities that don't, that just don't cost all that much in the grand scheme of things. And they could cut a big chunk of the administrative staff and they would still be making money from their endowments. And oh, yeah. that to me just is like, when I hear that, I'm just like, what's the point? I mean, this is a scam. Like this is Trump university. This is a, but actually it's Princeton. <laughs> like what yeah, are we yeah. doing here? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of those type of universities, I've heard them called not only kind of semi-jokingly their hedge funds with a school on the side. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but they're they're hedge funds that are also like tax exempt and you know oh, yeah, have yeah, all this yeah. other these other things that make them in some ways more well they get uh, government dollars sinister. too in a lot of cases. So like taxpayer dollars. I don't know about Princeton, but well uh, even if I, they I, don't even if they don't get tax money directly, it's still indirect in most cases because you know the federal guarantees of student loans are a subsidy. There you go. So, yeah, exactly. You I'm know, gonna have it, to it, deal with that too. I'm sure yeah, it's gonna be yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um the yeah we get off on on too many uh, rabbit holes with hollywood and academia two of my favorite things to i to yep, jabber I'm, about i'm i'm down with that too as you know so all right so um to kind of start circling towards towards the end here you mentioned that one of the things that nazism and stakeholder capitalism have in common uh that might not be so obvious at first glance is that they're both like vehemently anti-democratic. Yes, that's the key. That's the key. And you know, I've I've got my problems and criticisms of democracy in as do theory I. and yeah. practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah, at the yeah, same yeah. time, it's like setting aside that this is this what we have. This is who we are. Let's just let's go with the given. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's the same thing as like I'm I'm not a fan of communism, but I can also be honest and objective enough to say, but what this is, isn't communism, even though, sure, you know, I don't There's like aesthetic communism, similarities. Don't like yeah, this. yeah, 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 um, yeah. But I, I wonder, and, and again, this could potentially tie into Woodrow Wilson, like most, most <laughs> evil things in the world that are less yeah. than a hundred years old, but, um, or a little over a hundred years old, but, um, you know, it, it made me think of when thinking about the Burnham esque managerial revolution, the professional managerial class, the corporatism of this whole this whole thing, it made me think of Woodrow Wilson's concept of modern democracy, which mm-hmm. I talked about, you know, in yeah. the study of administration and in some of his later academic work, that it, it's very much like the same thing or a very similar thing. 
mm-hmm. where it is it's got various types of veneers of democracy right yeah. when you boil it down to like what it really is and how it out actually operates it's not really democratic in anyone's traditional understanding of that word mm-hmm. and so you know my my little saying for a long time and i'm probably when i start doing merch which i still haven't haven't uh, done yet for my show um, i i i'll buy I'll, whatever you're about to say i'm going to buy it because i want a really esoteric like like negative wilson reference because then people can be like wait 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 what's this and i'm like you gotta listen to this series that my friend has done <laughs> yeah yeah well well this one is is not a is not a wilson quote but it's my quote about like wilsonianism and then also like what we're actually living with in practice now and and the saying is modern democracy is just oligarchy with extra steps <laughs> that that yep, is a yep. saying i'm like when i do finally have dangerous history podcast t-shirts and shit that's one of the one of the ones i want to have is that quote yeah, and my my podcast logo or something, you know. Sure, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Modern yeah. democracy is just oligarchy with extra steps. That's a really and good way of putting it. That's, yeah, that's what I you know thought about when I was I was listening to you know you saying that this isn't democracy because like yeah it's not no and um well and it's know, neither is what Woodrow Wilson was talking right. about which I think is what we're actually living in <laughs> and, and obviously and neither just, was Nazism yeah that's yeah the other one <laughs> sure yeah and but it's 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 so it's so fascinating to me how you know, all of the objective evidence is like that this is an oligarchy. This is an oligarchical system that we live in. And yet it's the, I mean, it's, it's brilliant in its super oh, yeah. kind of way yeah. that the elites, the oligarchs and like their sock puppets amongst the political and media classes, they're the ones who will never shut up about our democracy. And, right, and, and right. anyone who's like any kind of populist now, to me, it's like when you see those populist uh, uprisings, whether they're left wing, right wing or whatever, that's that's like actual democratic impulses trying to to assert themselves to break through. Yeah. yeah and yeah. yet it's the people yeah. who, you know, brand themselves as our democracy the most, who are the ones who are the most quick to try and squash any populist yeah. outbreak. And it just it, it it depresses me how few people see it for what it is. And, and see that this is bullshit, that this is oligarchy with extra steps. Let me let me depress you further. It might be that most people do see it for what it is and just don't care. You know, I mean, and that's fine. You know, people have to live their lives in a lot of cases. I mean, that's I don't begrudge anyone for not focusing like a laser beam on how we are in an oligarchic sort of almost dystopia. I mean, I uh the one thing also that makes me very blackpilled about it too is when I look at populist movements and I, I see what you're saying, the democratic impulse trying to break its way through. It's 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 very real. But the part about populism that always gives me pause, if not outright disgust, is the inherent vulnerability it has to demagogues. Yeah. Usually demagogues who have no interest in anything except their own power. I mean Donald Trump comes to mind, you know, I mean, that's just, yeah. and, and people it, yeah. far worse than him, you know, throughout history, way, objectively worse. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler, he was, I mean, right. that's probably the best example. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. There. The, the ultimate example of populism gone off the rails. Yeah. So exactly. Like when I talk about democracy, I don't necessarily mean to equate democratic means good. Same thing yeah, with populism, yeah. which I, I think is, is actual real democratic impulses manifesting themselves that, just because I'm saying that populism is like actual democracy uh, or democratic impulses, that doesn't, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always in favor of it or in agreement with it. Yeah. And um, there's actually an episode um, that I still haven't made yet, but I've mm-hmm. actually worked on off and on for years at this point. Oh, cool. Um, about 
a a crazy governor of Florida. Um, okay. Back around the time, of course, it's a Florida man. Um, back around <laughs> the time of World War One, there was a guy who was governor of Florida for one term named Sidney Katz. And I've heard of, I've heard this name before. Yeah. Is he I, is he pretty famous? Like in um, history. I don't think he's super famous. You probably have heard me mention him somewhere, maybe even in a conversation with you. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've mentioned him before, but he was a progressive prohibitionist. Um, He was like a former evangelical preacher. He was he was also like a lot of people in the early 20th century. He was a prohibitionist, a progressive, but also a vehement racist and xenophobe. And so so he was like Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, he, he's like a more down home, blatantly racist. Like just Wilson. Not even hiding it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so he he runs because, um, of course, Florida was solid South Democratic in the early 20th century. And sure, so yeah. all the action was in the Democratic primary. So he runs in the Democratic primary um, to become governor of Florida. And um, I forget the details. It's been a while since I was working on this, this uh, potential future episode. But basically, he got blocked from getting the nomination but it was a case of like he and his supporters with some justification felt like they were sabotaged and like they mm. really won and the election was rigged or, and i forget the details of how it was done but it was you know at least plausible that the 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 kind of conservative democratic establishment of the state kind of blocked him mm-hmm. as being this populist firebrand um and so he runs on a third party ticket as uh, the prohibition party candidate which was like an extremely you know, fringe party at the time right. of Florida, I guess. He he runs as the Prohibition Party's candidate, in in which capacity he is in favor of alcohol prohibition for the state, but also he's pushing this whole progressive platform of like social programs and stuff. And he's vehemently racist and also anti-Catholic, which was bizarre because Florida had very few Catholics at the time. I was gonna say like that that always seemed to be part and parcel with like the waspy types like back in the day. They had such a dim view of capitalism and i actually should or capital excuse me catholicism uh yeah my my mother's father was like that and he was you know poor guy from ohio so like that was a very common sentiment back then yeah i um, i think it was that yeah i think it was actually more vehement amongst like the poorer uh, right yeah yeah yeah. you know protestants than amongst the elites but um, yeah yeah so so sydney katz comes in and he's governor and he doesn't get to implement a lot of the crazier shit that he he wanted but he does implement some progressive programs at the state level but then, you know, he he would he would repeatedly pander to uh, both anti-black and anti-Catholic bigotry uh, amongst the average voters. I mean, I'm assuming time. he had associations then, however tangential to like the KKK of the time, because that was like their big platforms was anti-Catholic, anti-Jew, anti-black, obviously. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't he wasn't like you know, like publicly endorsed by them or endorsing them, but certainly it's like parallel to that whole sentiment. Around sure. The sure. Yeah. World War One. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one of his, his, his wildest statements while he was still governor and world war one was happening. He, he publicly said, this is a sitting governor on the record. He publicly said he believed there was a conspiracy between the Kaiser, the Vatican and black people in Florida. So like all of his all of his, you know, uh, gr- groups that he was scared of at the time, like are all in one one conspiracy. And the, wow. the, the conspiracy was something like the German government was going to smuggle weapons into a Catholic monastery in Tampa, St. Leo. And the those Catholic monks then on behalf of the Kaiser, so, for some reason, were going to like 
hand out these German weapons to black people in the South. And then the black people were going to rise up uh, in a race war in order to take America out of world war one. And like, this is, this is a sitting, you know, governor of, of a state at the time, like saying this, which is, <laughs> but you know, the, the thing that, um, and, and if I ever do complete this episode, I'm going to call do. It, This sounds wild to yeah, me. I mean, he's just <laughs> such a, such a deranged character. I mean, he makes Donald yeah. Trump look like super boring and square, you know? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But the, if I ever do complete it, it's going to be called something like Sydney cats and the perils of populism. Yes. Because, yeah. Because what happens is there is um, like during his governorship and for several years after mm-hmm. there is a noticeable uptick in tensions and even violence mm-hmm. uh, against both black people and Catholic people in Florida. Jeez. Like they're, okay. they're, like you can see now he never explicitly called for it. He never mm-hmm. explicitly said like, go, you know, attack these people. But like, obviously he was stoking those, those people and those resentments and, right. and pandering to them. And so, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to say like he, he at least helped to foster an atmosphere in which those stuff in, in a right. much more direct way than Trump really ever did, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, and it's fine to say Trump stoked the people on January 6th, for example, I think he did, but you know, yeah, I, I, I think that that in general, just, you can look at any story and I think that this is a much more, you know, relevant story just cause it, you know, the effects seem so much stronger that populism does have an anti-democratic edge danger, I should say to it. And that's, you know, made most manifest again with the Nazis. I mean, there was something I wanted to point out from my from my episode that I, I think is important for people to understand is that when we say that this stuff is anti-democratic, we're not saying that the structure is the same. What I what I ended up writing, and it's in my podcast too, is that it doesn't matter if a corporation uses social causes and moral crusades to achieve greater profits, or if it really is a power play, or if a totalitarian state uses corporate power in order to pursue social causes and moral crusades because using corporate power one way or the other is what is anti-democratic. It's an anti-democratic perversion. And I think that populism can fuel that like it did with the Nazis and stakeholder capitalism can fuel it like it is today in a lot of cases. And I think that when something is anti-democratic, regardless of what you or I or anyone feels about democracy and its limitations, because it does have limitations. Anyone who says it all otherwise is lying, frankly. It doesn't matter because like whatever is anti-democratic that pursues a sort of top-down authoritarianism is in nobody's best interest, regardless of their ideology at the end of the day. And I and I think that that is a really uh to me, that's what where the comparison to, I think, Nazism is the most important is to say that the, the specifics don't matter as much as the impulse to destroy basically the, the voice of the people or the voice of the individual, if you want to get even you know more granular about that. Yeah, that makes me um, think of the classic Marshall McLuhan quote of the medium is the mm-hmm. message, where it's like the means, maybe the means matter more than the stated ends. So that a, you know, kind of regardless of what somebody says they're pursuing, you know, authoritarian uh, means for, whether it's for a communist utopia, a Nazi utopia, a woke utopia like California, right? Um, whatever the case may be, <laughs> that it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't matter as much what their stated ends are in their ideology, whether those sound nefarious on the surface or not. But 
the means they're using to pursue them. And I've thought for a long time that we need to, you know, people who, who want to engage in political discourse and debate, that we'd be better off if we spend a bit more time than we usually do, at least in our era, talking about means rather than just mm-hmm. ends. Because there's this tendency, and I, and I think our education system kind of encourages it, whether on purpose or not, to only want to debate ends. Like, what's your political goal? And so if someone's like, I want to bring about racial equality and utopia and blah, 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 blah. People are just like, wow, okay, sign me up. I just support you because you're- well, who would sign it? Who would be against yeah, that? Yeah, like, yeah. It's like, if somebody comes up to me and says, do you support racial equality? I'd be like, well, my first question would be, why are you even asking me? Of course I do. Like, it's self-evident to me. I just, I mean, but like it's being sold as if it's some controversial idea, you yeah, know? Yeah. Well, then the question is like, well, how do you define it? And then right, secondarily, yeah. like, what are the the means that you're advocating to pursue it? Exactly. Um, and, and so to me, you know, we would be better off if we talked, not to say that talking about ends. Should, you start with the be, ends, but then it's part of the same conversation. You have to have the means conversation alongside the ends conversation. I actually don't even think they're separate conversations. I think it's one conversation. If you have an end goal, you have to talk about the means. I mean, okay, I got to make an edgy joke. The Nazis did that. It was called the Vonsi conference, mm. you know, like they, they did talk about the ends and they did talk about the means and it produced heinous evil. Um, and I, that sounds like I'm refuting what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying though, is that I think that when we don't do that, it lets things like Vonsi happen. It lets like that kind of like backroom justification of means happen. If you just cede control of what the end goal is without a robust debate about it, you're going to essentially allow people to dictate the terms of what the end goal is going to be. And therefore you'll have no place at the table when discussing the means. And I I think that the I, I think that the the reason why I find the comparisons to Nazism poignant apart from just being nazism is because of that i i think it's a mistake also for people to think that it was a conscious goal to to make the shoah happen from day one like we, we've talked about this before that the that the, the the goal was to get rid of the jews in in nazi germany that was the goal that meant a lot of things to a lot of different people some people did want to just want them to be exterminated from day one but a lot of them just did, wanted to ethnically cleanse them which isn't good. It's obviously bad, but it's basically highlighting the sort of diversity of thought within the Nazi upper echelons of means of what you're talking about, of like what the means of their goals were. And I think the mistake that people make when they typically invoke Nazism is they assume that it's just what they're doing is they're, they're falling prey to hindsight bias. They know what the Nazis were doing. And they're willing to just assume that that was just what it was always going to be from day one. What it was going to be from day one without question was persecution of the Jews. It wasn't extermination. That wasn't known quite – that wasn't put into concrete terms or means until much later. So I think people are are less willing to see this comparison we're talking about because they're thinking about things in hindsight as opposed to things in the present. And in the pre, and again, I'm not saying that stakeholder capitalism is going to result in some genocidal program. I don't think they're that ambitious, the people who believe in it. I think it's just about self enrichment. Uh, And again, that's also why I'm not that scared of it. I just think it's a really, really bad system. And it is part and parcel with authoritarian systems of the past, particularly Nazism and fascism. So, 
Um, just to kind of wrap up, um, I wanted to hit kind of your, your final points that you made in this podcast episode that we're talking about, sure. uh, which is sort of your suggestions or prescriptions for um, how to deal with this. And so would it be fair to summarize that a lot of your suggestions for how best to deal with this whole phenomenon of, of, of stakeholder capitalism and, um, you know, the infestation in a lot of these institutions by these ideologies that a big part of it is to simply vote with your dollars and vote with mm-hmm. your, your attention and, and what you, you know, choose to consume and patronize and whatever. W- would it be fair to say that like that, that's kind of the. Yeah, because I wanted to offer solutions that didn't require people to do too much because I I recognize that most people don't want to become activists. I don't want to become an activist. I mean, I'm just a, you know, I'm just shooting my mouth off into a microphone. Uh, So I recognize that and not everybody wants to run for office. So I'm thinking of like the lowest effort you can do that will actually help this be less of a a threat to people. Like, uh, for example, like voting with your dollars is has always really worked. I do think the market is already in sort of bound to correct itself with regards to say some things like Hollywood. I mean, we talked about this, I think last time we did an episode together where we were talking about um, uh, the, the white pills out there and that there's a lot of people who just, you know, never really signed up for this. They just kind of went along with it. And then when the profits started suffering, they started making changes and I think that that just waiting it out is a big part of it. I think a lot of people get really mad about me using very classic libertarian arguments, which is that the the market will correct a lot of this. I, but I do think it will, at least in the cultural realm. I, I, I don't actually have much hope that the market will correct for academia until enrollment starts dropping in a major way. And that requires a cultural shift of the value of higher education, which – I don't know how you, I mean, I'm not going to tell people not to go to college. That's that I feel irresponsible doing that. So in that sense, I don't necessarily think the market will necessarily correct, but I think if you start correcting the market via the culture or the, I'm sorry, rather if the culture starts getting corrected via the market, market forces, then, you know, you don't really have to do much. And then also voting for people that don't support, you know, these kinds of, um, these kind of bizarre, uh, woke ideology stuff, but also not voting for people who are so against it that they are willing to use authoritarianism to displace it. People like JD Vance, for example, who just they have no they have no issue with the administrative state in as much as they have an issue with who's running it. And to that end, I'm like, okay, so you're you just want to do an administrative coup. That's missing the point. Like you 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 are basically just replacing one form of authoritarian cultural capture with another. And that is not a solution to me, at least. So, yeah, I, I think that like being smart with who you actually vote for, voting with your dollars, and just being patient, seeking out the things that don't like conform to this worldview and any other toxic worldview that has no interest in individual agency. Like it just, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna try to be cheesy. You stay true to yourself. Don't get captured by an ideology especially in in uh in effort to oppose an objectively terrible one like that that is used by stakeholder capitalism yeah and i would just urge people to as much as they can adopt the sort of indie diy spirit yes. 
of like the original punk rock movement, not not yeah. the aging punk rockers today that tell you to <laughs> be a badass rebel by getting your Pfizer booster, but um or voting for a Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Joe <laughs> Biden is who real punk rockers should support. Jesus Christ. Um, but don't remind me of 2004 with John Kerry and Green Day. That was really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but seek those things out. You know whether it's whatever media you consume i mean i know we're self-interested as indie podcasters but like of course yeah listen to and and in whatever way you can support your indie podcaster don't npr's podcasts do not need your ears and they don't need your dollars and neither do podcasts connected to that that was i mean something that really made an impact on me when i went to um that podcasting educational podcasting conference at Harvard years ago right, yeah. that that there was clearly a divide between guys like us and some of you know the the internet friends I met in person there um at that conference um you know including people who've been on my show and I've been on theirs and whatever you know that uh, that was actually where I met Kristaps uh, in person by the way but yeah um, yeah and and some other. I remember you talk. I remember you talking about this with uh, Sam Davis of the yep, yep. Departed Inward Empire podcast. Yeah, yeah. Which of the late lamented. That- I I miss I miss his uh, his work, but um, seriously, some of the best out there. Yeah. People should go listen to that. But yeah, I heard you guys are talking about like specifically. I remember you were saying that because Carlin was there. Yeah, and Carlin obviously is the one of the biggest podcasters in general of all time. Uh, not to, I mean, not to say anything of how he's obviously the godfather, one of the godfathers of history podcasting. Uh, but you were saying that he, uh, like that the NPR people, those establishment types just kind of turned their nose up at him. Yeah. And when yeah. I heard and that, that was the first time I ever heard of that. I figured that he was just sort of a household name that everybody respected. But when you said that, I mean, that was another one of those, like sort of chipping away at my sense that. Anybody who's part of these institutions that we're talking about have any sort of like compassion for anybody that isn't them. Yeah. It seems like nothing but contempt for the DIY. Yeah. Cause as, as big as Dan Carlin is like, he's still kind of his own thing and, you know, setting aside yeah. my disappointments at him for uh shilling for Joe Biden in 2020, um, you know, <laughs> but, but he, he still feels like he's, he's uh, he's like an indie band that just got big somehow yeah 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 and and that the the corporate and institutional podcasts whether they're npr connected or connected to some big university or connected to some big big bucks think tank or a corporation or whatever it is like those are those are very different those are like you know boy bands and uh you know fake country bands and whatever that are just paint by numbers you know um too too slick and too premeditated and 32 minute episodes yeah 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 yeah. and and meanwhile there's us diy guys and so you know i would just urge everybody in whatever it is you know um if you yeah and i would say go go for people who you don't agree with inherently like if you are a left-winger you know support a right-wing podcast you're a right-winger support a left-wing podcast if you can you know you know, find voices that you like, of course, don't just subscribe to them for ideological reasons alone, but like it, it's, you get exposed to so many more diverse opinions ranging from the milk toast to the radical when you go with the DIY stuff. And, you know, yeah. Are you getting like the, the gatekeeper approved information? Is there errors in it? Probably. But the thing is, DIY people tend to take criticisms of inaccuracies pretty well. 
I mean, I've been, you know, I, I had a, there was an earlier episode I did that I honestly don't remember the specifics, but this um, Israeli listener of mine uh, who I've become, you know, internet friends with, he uh, emailed me and corrected me on something. And it's something I wouldn't have known because I don't speak Hebrew and I don't speak Arab. So he was able to point me to to a correction and I was able to make a correction on the following episode and it I was better for it. I mean, and again, I always point to what you've always said about the importance of honest history, not objective history. And I mean, I guess subjective history is one thing too. I don't know if that's even a thing, but just the point is, is like, don't get bogged down in the conversations about objective versus subjective. As long as you're honest about where you're coming from, you can then signal boost to people who might not agree with your worldview that they can, you can point them in the direction of other research that they can do themselves. And I think that this, that's just such a much more valuable way to produce a, a more well-rounded person than someone who just turns on CNN or NPR, listens to a segment for 15 minutes or watches a segment for five minutes and then walks away being like, okay, I know what's going on in the world today. Like, no, you don't. Like, if you want to learn about the war in Ukraine, at least from the perspective of somebody who lives over there, listen to Chris Stops' podcast. If you want to learn about the dissent against it, I'm trying to think of like a good uh, dissentious podcast about it. Uh, maybe the debate that he had with Daryl Cooper on Martyr Maid. You know, that's another really good one. Just you get you get the wide array of perspectives. You will be inoculated from, you know, the kind of stuff that we've been talking about for however long it's been. Yeah. And um, one other recommendation I'll, I'll make to anybody listening is, and this this is something that I am going to cover sometime in the coming months, because actually it, uh, it's the custom-made DHP miniseries that one of my top donors on Indiegogo um, selected as a, as a oh, topic nice, for nice. me, is um, all about the Czech dissident movement under communism yeah, in, in late yeah. communist Czechoslovakia, you know, uh, Václav Havel, and then all the other uh, mm-hmm. all the other people associated with that, um, they I find them so interesting for a bunch of reasons. They're they're to me maybe the most interesting of all like the anti-communist dissident groups behind the Iron Curtain in the late Cold War. Um, and part of it is like they had a whole worked out like philosophy and theory of what they were doing. Really? And, yeah, and the term they often used uh, is parallel society. They were like, oh, I've heard that term. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah they yeah. they would talk about like, look, the the actual state and its institutions, and they referred to where communism was at in like the seventies and eighties as post post totalitarian is what they called it. They're like, yeah, it's no longer like the Stalin type of dictatorship. It's it's a new thing. It's post totalitarian. Um, but they talked about the parallel society and the parallel polis, um, uh-huh. where again, very kind of like DIY independent punk rock kind of ethos to it where um you know people need to the state's going to continue to exist it's going to continue to use um sometimes oppressive measures to keep itself in place whatever don't focus so much on like going at it head on so to right, speak, because yeah. that's their game they'll always yeah. they'll always win if you play their game and of instead course. just like you know build your own institutions and your mm-hmm. own organizations that are, you know, separate from it and, and below it. And it's, it's amazing how often when you look at successful rebellions, that's part of what they did. Like mm-hmm. in, in the American revolution, you know, in the early phases, the key part was that all these little local towns and whatever organized their own local committee of safety, which is like a local political unit slash militia unit. Right. Um, and the same thing I know uh, during the, the Anglo-Irish 
war, the, the Irish War of Independence in the early 1920s, same deal. Part of why the Irish were successful in their rebellion was that they organized their own little governments mm-hmm. um, in localities, and they often were not even using very coercive means to enforce themselves. It was just like if if an Irish you know tenant had a dispute with his landlord, increasingly they would voluntarily go to the local you know I forget what they would have called it Sinn Fein or whatever a uh, little, yeah, little yeah. like court. And, mm-hmm. and it was just because they were like, this is, and it more- wasn't like, and it wasn't like a show trial court. It was like, they actually did care about creating like a, a system that was sustainable and not what you would see, for example, in early revolutionary Russia, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, um, you know, certainly they weren't perfect and whatever, but they seem to have, from what I can recall, and it's been you know 20 years since I read about the stuff in graduate school, but from what sure. I can recall, they really seem to have kind of focused on you know, what is a, what is a court ultimately? It is a dispute resolution system, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so what they really focused on was simply providing dispute resolution services that were superior to what the British authorities were offering and that more of the population actually respected. And over Mm -hmm. time, the population saw these, not just these courts, but the like, you know, whole parallel government being created kind of from the bottom up. Uh, increasingly, the population outside of you know the Protestant areas saw these as more legitimate than the British, you know, yeah, system. And, and it requires like rickety authority on the part of um, you know, the, the 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 top of the hierarchy. I mean, I think that's one reason why I would imagine. I mean, I guess I'll find out. I'm actually really excited to uh, hear this uh, series or single episode, whatever it ends up being, about uh, the parallel society in Czechoslovakia, but. Uh, the, the, you know, the impression I get is that especially in the seventies and eighties, communism in Eastern Europe was becoming increasingly rickety. Now that's just my hindsight bias. I could be mistaken. It might not have felt that way at the time, but I'm just thinking, you know, to bring it into what we were talking about and to help justify my perhaps dubious claim that the market forces will correct. I do think that the, this is going to sound really weird and counterintuitive, but the fact that culture is so beholden to market forces in a lot of ways makes it a very rickety enterprise. So that's what I mean. If you start creating true parallel societies, if you will, in our, you know, in our space and other spaces, and I don't mean making movies with the daily wire. I don't think that's a parallel society. I'm sorry. I, I think, I think Gina Carano was railroaded a bit, but I also think that her Instagram post is a little ham fisted because, you know, she's an actress, <laughs> but, uh, but like th- that's not the answer, uh, is like creating new establishments It's creating the parallel society, like you're saying. And I think if that parallel society is uh, strong enough, doesn't have to be unified, but if it's strong enough and robust enough and putting out enough good content, that will always be there for when the market forces are shifted away from the hegemonic order established by Hollywood and the media and academia and so forth. And people will have somewhere to turn. And then whether they like it or not, those those uh, things that are governed, primarily Hollywood, but just the things that are governed by market forces, those cultural things will have to look at who is being successful. And that is the people in the parallel economy, essentially. And I think that that is a white pill that I'm, I'm happy to close on that with my point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just kind of um, do my best to crystallize it into an action, a uh, call to action <laughs> on, on yeah, my yeah. part um, that uh, I would urge people listening to be honest uh, about themselves 
as to whether they are genuinely a creative person or not. And if you are genuinely a creative person, like that is your psychology, that's what drives you, then figure out how to create your own, whatever it is that you do as independently as you're able to. And then if you're someone who being honest is not a creative type, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. We we need need all types of people to make the world go around. There's, you know, as a, as a creative, uh, crazy person myself, like I, I totally acknowledge I need people who are boring, uncreative squares to help make things work. But we need a very miniature uh, PMC for our for, for to make things work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. and maybe you know more important than that, we need like the skilled uh, craftsmen and artisans who are yes. you know a, a whole separate thing entirely. But for whom I always have a lot of respect uh, and Absolutely. oftentimes even jealousy because they can fix shit <laughs> I don't know how to fix. But yeah, um, yeah. But but anyway, <laughs> if you are somebody who is you know not really creative person but you you appreciate uh culture and media and art and all these sorts of things then do whatever you can to support the independent non-corporate non-government non you know big institutions connected of whatever it is you like to consume like you know maybe you're someone who you're not really creative enough to be a good writer but you like reading fiction go find you know the stuff off the radar that maybe is self-published or independent, but is still good and patronize those people vote with your dollars, you know, or, or whether mm-hmm. it's movies, podcasts, anything, um, you know, visual arts, whatever. Um, so yeah, make shit. If that's the kind of person you are. And if that's not the kind of person you are patronize shit, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm <laughs> preferably uh, patronize uh, myself and Alex. Um, but Hey, <laughs> yes, you know, please. <laughs> at least uh, throw some money at somebody uh, who's, yeah. who's trying to do something in the parallel uh, uh, society. All right. Well, I guess we'll finally uh, throw in the towel and, and uh, end recording, but um, Alex, I appreciate your time. And um, again, as always, I, I recommend your podcast and this episode in, in particular, I found very interesting. Although I, I also did recently listen to your episode with uh, Greg from uh, oh, right, rooms, yeah. and that, that was also very interesting too so i can recommend that one as well but anyway uh thanks for talking with me again and, and thanks for your time for sure thanks for having me man so i hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as i enjoyed having it and again i want to highly recommend alex's podcast history impossible in general and the episode we were talking about in particular like i've said many times history impossible is one of the relatively few history podcasts that I'm a fan of and a regular listener to. And in fact, in the case of Alex, I'm not just a listener, I'm a supporting listener. I contribute to his Patreon a few bucks every month. And so I highly suggest you consider doing that as well. Not instead of supporting the DHP, but in addition to, of course. And I also want to echo myself, kind of what I was saying towards the end of our conversation there, that whatever independent media or art or whatever you enjoy, Please do everything you reasonably can to help out independent creators. They're not able to rely on help and support and subsidy from the state or from big corporations or other powerful institutions. And it's very important because pretty much every major institution, whether it's nominally public or private, is completely corrupted and captured. It's very important, even more so than it would be if we weren't, you know, so far down this road, that you do everything you reasonably can to support the independent creators that you appreciate. 
And so I'm just going to close out with a heartfelt ask that if you're not a supporter of the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon or Subscribestar on a monthly basis, please, please, please consider doing so. I could really, really use all the additional support I can get right now. You know, the awesome individuals who kicked in to my Indiegogo campaign, they bought me the breathing space to walk away from academia and start doing the DHP and related stuff full time. And that's all great. But now, you know, I need the ongoing contributions to keep this thing a going concern. So if you're not already a supporting listener of the Dangerous History Podcast, there will be links as well in the show notes to my Patreon and Subscribestar. And you can sign up and help keep this thing a going concern and, you know, prevent me from having to go dig ditches or whatever, because God knows I don't think I could live with myself if I went back into academia, and I don't know if they'd have me at this point. But if you want this thing to keep going, and you want all kinds of cool bonuses, like depending on your level of support, bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, access to bi-monthly or monthly live streams with me, access to the DHP book club that we hold every month over Zoom, things like that, please, please, please consider signing up to support my work on a monthly basis. Thank you very much. Thank you.